Hello, listeners. You are about to listen to the Two Tools Baseball Podcast. This is a show for any and all baseball fans and is led by myself and my co-host, Travis. I'm what you would call a stats nerd, and my buddy Travis was a total stud on his D3 college team. Our goal is to try to show you how we view the game of baseball, and maybe we'll share a few laughs along the way. So grab a drink, kick back, and join us wonderful ride through the 2022 MLB offseason. Enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tools Baseball Podcast, episode 36. Alex and I coming to you live. It's Monday night, November 22nd, just right before Thanksgiving. The holidays kind of start getting going. Uh, Alex, today's episode, it's kind of a jam-packed one because we just finished last week with all the awards, all of the MVP, Cy Young, Rookie of the Years, all those awards were finally announced, which I know me and you were definitely waiting for because we had some some money on the line. Yep. So uh, we'll we'll, we'll learn to hear that uh, if we came through with the wins or if we, you know... Had to swallow our sorrows with some of the uh, the L's. So we'll talk about the awards that were announced last week. And then starting off, off last week as well, a lot of the starting pitching market has been kind of, you know, coming down and settling with teams. Um, we've had a lot of big breaking news the last week with all the starting pitchers. Mostly feels like just starting pitching has been the high um, priority for a lot of teams this offseason, yep. as it should be because, you know, as you see most teams every year with, with that hold the championship trophy – end up usually having a really good starting pitching staff to get them through the playoffs. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk, of course, about um, back to the awards, the MVP, um, possibly one of the most you know historic seasons in Major League Baseball. Me and Alex actually designed our top five best individual seasons of all time. Um, and we'll kind of go through that criteria later on in the episode. But uh, just thought we'd make a list because, you know, one guy this year had a pretty remarkable year, and I think it goes up to almost any MLB great uh, and ranks, you know, right alongside them. So, of course, we'll talk about uh, who we who we have for you know top seasons of all time. But Alex, let's kind of start with some of the updates on the free agency market. Yeah. Um, I guess the first name, the first domino that fell, it actually I think it happened at least like one week to this day back. That was Eduardo Rodriguez heading to the Detroit Tigers. Um, I'll let you start. Kind of give me your two cents on the deal and what you th- what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I think that you know, I think the teams that were really in on Eduardo Rodriguez were these teams that know they're trying to make a push in a window of you know the next two or three years, something like that. Because uh, he's the kind of guy who, even though he had not a great ERA in uh, in in twenty twenty one. Um, we kind of know what he's capable of, and some of the underlying stats show that you know he had some real bad luck. Obviously, Travis playing at Fenway is going to be a very uh, hitter-friendly park, which will hurt your numbers a bit. Also, the defense behind him featured guys like Kyle Schwarber, uh, Xander Bogarts, um, a lot of guys kind of switching in at second base, playing you know in- infrequently. And Devers also, you know, not a terrible defender, but you know not a Gold Glove kind of guy. So just not like an amazing defense behind him. Um, and going to Detroit, Travis. Um, honestly, I'm really big ballpark. High, I'm really high on Eduardo because I think that a lot of balls, you know, might stay in the park. Whereas Fenway, that was not going to happen. Um, it is the, the numbers say it is a pitcher friendly park, so I do think that um, Eduardo is going to have a lot of success. 
this coming season and you know for the next couple seasons. I think it's a very smart deal for Detroit to go and try to bolster up that rotation that has so many young guys, right? Like Casey Mize, Tarek Skubal, we know, Matt Manning. We know they have these younger names um, that show promise for the future, but to get a guy who's already a veteran um, was definitely a priority. I don't think they're done adding Detroit. I think they know that they have the upcoming talent and they know that there's only one team in their way to make the playoffs and that's just the White Sox. If they can just beat, have a better record than the White Sox, then they're going to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. That's almost certainly the way it seems. Of course, the Twins could sneak up and Indians could sneak up, but in reality, Detroit knows if we can outplace the White Sox, we're in amazing shape. So they're just going to try to get starting pitching that will match up and then just see where it goes. So... I think Erod's a great start for their offseason. Yeah, and you made a good point about him at Finley Park. You know, I didn't really think about that. He is a left-handed pitcher, and that, of course, really favors righties. And righties at Finley Park have a nice little short porch, uh, the Green Monster, to, you know, just pop a fly ball over. And I- I'm not even going to mention that. Well, I am going to mention that he's facing the Blue Jays so much That's at right. Fenway Park. That's right. He's facing the Rays so much at Fenway Park. He's facing the Yankees a bunch at Fenway Park. Now you're going to be facing lots of, you know, I mean, the White Sox still bash, of course. Yeah. But um, the just Twins, the, Royals, you know, t- in, some in, teams, in, some yeah. teams you can expect a little bit less from, of course. So um, and in, in, a, in, a, in a bigger park. So I do think that it's a good fit and I expect his numbers to be really good. I might even be looking into seeing, you know, what his Cy Young odds look like. It'd be probably a long shot, but um, I think a couple bucks on him could make a lot of sense. Definitely. Just because of the potential there in Detroit, especially if they go on a hot run at some point. Definitely, definitely. And, and uh, you know, what you said about, you know, the Tigers really, that it, it's it was kind of a power move by their, you know, stance, you know, kind of making the big deal to start off the offseason. Um, it really shows, I think, the rest of the league and the, and the American League Central that they are, you know, they're not done yet. I think they still have a lot of more acquisitions to get. Uh, you know, it kind of feels like this team now, with a couple of these moves and some of these big acquisitions, they could be kind of a sneaky team. You know, you didn't really see that roster at the end of 2021 being a team that could really compete for a division title and possibly even a playoff spot. But right now you're kind of seeing them make these moves. I don't think it's the last one. Um, I know there's a high, you know a highly talented shortstop on the market that they want to get yep. and uh, bring an uh, AJ Hinch reunion back. So uh, we'll have to see what happens. I know the Tigers in you know in the next five years they should be a very good team in the American League and the American League Central. They have a lot of young talent. So um, the future is bright at least for Detroit. I know those fans are probably thinking you know ever since they lost you know Prince Fielder Scherzer. I, I still laugh at that list that we saw with the uh, 2014 uh, Detroit Tigers rotation. Right. They've all won Cy Youngs. They've all won championships practically. And it's like Detroit's just sitting there like, look what we had. We were sitting on a gold mine. But, uh, but yeah, really interesting to see, you know, how their offseason gets, uh, you know, keeps going and, and you know, goes right into the, uh, you know, start of spring training. But let's go into the next team, Alex. And this is a, uh, this is our team. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Angels. So last week, just about, you know, probably one week ago, uh, Angels reported they signed Noah Syndergaard for from well, actually not from, but he was a free agent, but pitched for the Mets for his whole entire career, just became a uh, free agent. I know he declined a qualifying offer and was able to be signed by the Angels last week. One year, $21 million. Uh, Alex, thoughts on that deal? Thoughts on the overall, you know, the paying, the pain, the salary and everything that was paid for him? Yeah, so the deal is for a bit more than the qualifying offer, which is what the Mets offered him. So... 
uh, essentially the Angels just kind of knew that we had to not only up that price, but Charles, I heard rumors that teams had offered him up to $25 million, and so that means the Angels must have sold him on something. And uh, Charles, we're both obviously Angels fans. We're kind of in tune with some of the Angels gossip and buzz, and, and people are saying that uh, general manager Perry Manassian went and had dinner with him for three hours, and they were discussing... Syndergaard said himself that you know, this general manager was telling a pitcher different ways that he could make some tweaks, uh, the ways that Angels could kind of utilize his strengths and help his weaknesses to really get the most out of him coming into the season. Um, and then just kind of said, we want to gamble on you, so please gamble on us. And we think that we both can have a lot to provide for each other. And I think Syndergaard is really sold on that. Um, I also heard that the Mets just weren't that aggressive in, in communicating with him before, you know, the the qualifying offer came out. So he felt, I think, I think he felt wanted by the Angels, and the Angels made it clear that um, they were willing to take a gamble on him because, of course, Travis, coming back from Tommy John is something that uh, there's going to be a bit of a question mark. Um, but we just saw Shohei Otani have his best, most complete pitching season in the pros, um, and this was the second season after his Tommy John surgery, which is what Noah Syndergaard is going to be due for this coming season. It'll be his second full season, or sorry, his first full season two years after Tommy John. So um, looking at some of his numbers, Travis, I really like what I see um, on StatCast 2018-2019. He's like over 90 percentile in, in like allowing, he allows, you know, tons of weak contact. No one gets hard hits off him, but he also is throwing 100 miles an hour. So um, just a lot of just a lot of overall great stuff. Um, I I think that this was not the main move. I think there is still more to come for the Angels. Of course, later on we're we'll talking about another pitcher they did, did they did acquire today for their bullpen. But um, I think just as a way to start off with the rotation, having Otani and Syndergaard in your top two or top three of your rotation is uh, a phenomenal start to the off season. Um, we are not used to getting these kind of uh, free agents, Travis. We are just not used to getting uh, big name guys that we kind of, you know, people have been kind of whispering for a while, oh, could we get Syndergaard? Like almost mm-hmm. for a year now, we've been kind of hoping for it. But uh, we did finally land a guy that we were hoping to get um, right right away too, which is which is the best part about it because usually we're waiting until February wondering if we're going to get uh, a big ace. So we already got a guy that's hopefully ready to go. Also, the six-man rotation I heard was another plus for him because Otani, pitcher-hitter, he likes to be in a six-man rotation. Also, it will help Syndergaard kind of uh, control his inning count. That way, he doesn't, you know, overwork it on his first year uh, back after two seasons of missed baseball. So, um, overall, I think it's a very good fit. Um, it addresses the Angels' biggest concern, which was starting pitching. And the upside, if he returns the form, Travis, obviously, he is an ace. He's a number one in any rotation in, in baseball, pretty much. Yeah, and I, I like, you know, the one thing, I was a little skeptical on the one-year deal. I think the Angels need to go out there and try to sign someone for, you know, get get some length in some of those uh, terms with, with some, some of the pitchers. But, you know, this gives Noah kind of one year to get everything back on track. Um, I think before 2019, I mean, this guy was a top pitcher in baseball. I mean, looking back at some of these numbers, um, the ERAs were below three in, you know, 2017 and 2016. And then in 2015, um, 
was very, very good and was fourth in rookie of the year that year. So he was an upcoming pitcher, uh, still very young at the time. But yeah, I mean, I think this one-year deal gives him a lot of, you know, a, a lot of motivation to get everything back in order. And hey, that's what the Angels want. They want to sign a guy for $21 million for one year and go out there and be a top five in, you know, Cy Young voting for the American League. So I I really like the deal. I've, I've always thought Thor... Uh, was always, you know, I, I always liked the Thor pick. I know last season and seasons before, we all saw that Thor was going to become, uh, you know, the the free agent this offseason. So really happy the Angels went out and got him. Um, and would just honestly, I'm so anxious to see what he brings to the table this year on a one-year deal. Uh, and I think, like you said, the comparisons with him and Otani coming out after um, Tommy John, I mean, Right now, no one. You hear a lot of things on, on social media that say, you know, Syndergaard, oh, he won't be the same. You know, you're, you're not going to get the same guy, Angels. That's what everybody's saying after Shohei's second start of 2020 when he was awful. Everyone was just saying, oh, this Shohei Otani is not the same. You won't get the same guy again. What are you going to do? You know, that sort of thing. Shohei basically just, you know, silenced everybody by yeah. you know going out there this season and putting up the numbers he did, especially in the second half with the pitching numbers. But. Um, yeah, really like this deal. Uh, uh, love that the, that the velo, the top of the rotation right now, although Tani Syndergaard is, it, those are triple digit uh, velos from both those guys. Yeah, that's a big deal for sure. Um, just the thing the Angels have been lacking is that kind of top velocity in both the bullpen and the starting rotation. But uh, another thing that kind of came to my mind, Travis, uh, I kind of mentioned that the Syndergaard and Angels are kind of gambling on each other. Um, Pretty much angels are saying, we know you're coming back from injury, but we're going to pay you $21 million to just try to get back to where you were before. And then he's kind of betting on us because we haven't had a winning season in quite a while. But um, I think, you know, if SoCal is somewhat of an attractive destination for him, and obviously he thinks that, you know, playing with Otani and Trout and Rendon, um, there's quite a bit of upside in the organization. So that's great. And honestly, I think if he gets on track quickly – Say halfway through the season, he is looking great. Um, I could honestly see a situation almost like a, like Charlie Morton, Travis, where he had a great... Uh, he was just kind of switching from Tampa Bay to Atlanta, got off to a good start, and had mm-hmm. a good first year with the new organization, and they immediately extended him in the middle of the season, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Or like, you know, right towards the end of the season. So, Very true. Um, if something like that were to happen, if he had a great first year in Anaheim, and he not only enjoyed being here, but, you know performed well at the same time, I could really see an extension happening, you know, maybe before the season even ends. Definitely. And I, I was thinking too, the worst possibility also is maybe he does really well and some, you know, God forbid, hopefully we're still competing in August in September, you know, but also what if a guy like him is doing very well and we could possibly, you know, send that out for a trade and, you know, get something very valuable in return. Of course, I know the Angels don't really plan on, you know, I, I wouldn't want to see us get prospects. I want to see us start to win now instead of, you know, shipping good talent for, yeah. you know, guys that are going to be helpful in two or three years. I want to, you know, everyone wants wants to win now for the Angels. So, um, yeah, a, a very good pick by the Angels. Another guy right now, Alex, that they just got about, I think it was four hours ago, um, was Aaron Loop. He is another guy that played for the New York Mets last season. And Alex... Yep. He put together a career, almost a historic reliever season last year. I know the one number that definitely is exciting to see and look at is the .95 ERA um, out of the bullpen with about 57 innings pitched last last off, or less last season. So Aaron Loop headed to the Angels two years, $17 million. I know there's a third-year option as well included. So uh, 
just starting with you again, Alex, what are you, what are your thoughts on that whole pickup, you know, that happened earlier today? Yeah, so I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard, but he was someone going into last season that I really wanted the Angels, right. the Angels to try to target because he just brings a lot of upside as a kind of, you know, going to own any lefties as like a, you know, a lefty-lefty, just great reliever in that regard. Um, but also just, you know, has the unique arm angle, but still gets, you know, really good movement, great spin on the ball. And I think for all those reasons, he was a very desirable free agent offseason, but went to the Mets on a one-year deal, leaving Tampa Bay, of course. So there's always, I think yeah. there's, there's always a little bit of a concern if you get someone from Tampa Bay. We know the Rays are just masterminds over there, and if they're doing something with their pitchers that, you know, gets the most out of them, if they leave that uh, situation, they leave that environment, maybe their numbers could go up a bit, the ERA could go up a bit, but... Um, Loop got even better going to New York for the Mets. And honestly, it feels like it's a kind of a lot of money for a, a relief pitcher who's not going to be a closer. But I've said it again and again. I don't really care how much we spend. We just need pitching, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, at the end of the day, I think the upside is just an amazing, amazing addition. Uh, Travis, I actually saw a stat that this was the first... Um, it's the fir- I believe it's the first pitcher to sign with the Angels. I'll, I'll, I'll put this in the form of a trivia question. Who was the most recent, before Aaron Loop, pitcher to sign with the Angels as a free agent for multiple years? Yeah, I saw that one. Joe Blanton. 2012. <laughs> Like 2013. 2013 20, was 20, it? Okay. 2013 Joe Blanton. I saw that. I was going to share that too. had it on my phone because I was just like, that is like honestly – the saddest, but one of the most amazing stats I've heard from Angels, you know, trivia. That right there, um, that 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 goes up there pretty far with some of the saddest things out there. But you know, you're so right. So looking at his numbers, uh, a point nine five ERA in 2021, and it was a very good two point five two the year before with the Rays. His FIP uh, also went down from 2020 to 2021. Uh, so he, you know, is showing a lot of. Uh, just, a, just a lot of upside. Um, yeah, and he was featured in 65 games, which is, you know, a pretty decent load for a, a uh, relief pitcher. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing how we use him out of the pen. I hope that Joe Madden can get the same out of him that the Mets did um, because lefty, I think, honestly, lefty relievers is an issue we had last season. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex Claudio and Tony Watson um, at times looked serviceable. Other times, especially with Claudio, you feel like this guy just kind of shouldn't be getting the kind of outings. He shouldn't be getting these kind of moments. Loop is a guy who I feel like I could really trust in a seventh and eighth inning in a close game. So I'm really excited. I think if we could get back Iglesias, Travis, it would be so huge. I actually saw a leaderboard today on Twitter. There's a stat called like Stuff Plus, and it just it just grades like how good your spin are and how good your spin is and how good your movement is on your pitches for across all your pitches and loop and Iglesias were actually top two last season in all of baseball. Interesting. Okay. So it just kind of shows that there's so much upside in it. If we could get a loop Rezal Iglesias eighth, ninth inning kind of combo, it would be super deadly. Uh, it'd be super deadly. So Travis, give me your thoughts on loop as well. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I I'm with you when it says, you know, when you, when you say no matter how much you got to spend, let's get the good guys. Let's get these top guys that have proved to be successful in loop in uh, you know in, uh, pitching in the Amer- in the National League East uh, you know 
a lot of good hitters in the National League East. Sure. You know, Juan Soto, Acuna, um, some of the best and young guys in that division and the success that he had. Uh, really, really impressive. Alex, it's really interesting because Syndergaard, uh, you know, he started out with the Blue Jays and then was traded to the Mets, and that's where he kind of that's where he started his career at the Mets. And then, of course, Loop starting with the Blue Jays last year, pitched for the Mets, and now he's with the Angels. There's one more guy, Marcus Stroman. Uh, yeah, kind of the same path. And I know a lot of people have said he is the guy that the Angels targeted and should be. Uh, you know, signing this offseason, it'd be a really interesting thing if that happened. Just a little funny, you know, um, you know, fact about that. Just coming from, you know, the Blue Jays to New York and then the Angels taking, you know, it seems like all the Mets scraps right now. Uh, maybe they can we'll work out. A, maybe they can work out a deal in with uh, with new GM Billy Epler to maybe you know ship us to Grom or something like that. that that'd be that'd be good to me. That'd be really nice. But uh, no, really like the move. I would love it even more if we get Iglesias back. That would just be a dominant. I think eighth and ninth a lefty righty combo right there. Uh, that would right there really solve a lot of our problems. And then of course building the starting pitching staff so that our starting pitchers can go six seven innings on a regular basis. That would really help out the bullpen. You know, I think it just creates such a good balance between the bullpen and the starting pitching staff. And then, of course, our offense. Our our offense will be top notch if Rendon and Trout are all healthy. Everybody's healthy next year. I mean, Angels' offense is probably going to be scoring around you know five runs a game, and so that will just help everybody out even more. So uh, honestly, Travis, I think a, a loop Iglesias eighth, eighth and ninth inning. I had this kind of thought earlier today when I heard the news. It is at first I thought it might have been the best eight nine in baseball, but I think Williams and Hayter have deserved. Oh, yeah. Yeah. they've just deserved to have yeah. that title uh, for the time being. Uh, but honestly, I think it really goes up there. It has to be a top two or a top three, like eighth, ninth inning duo. Definitely. Um, if we were to keep Iglesias, all, yeah. all pending on that happening, um, which he did say he, he enjoyed being on the Angels. So hopefully they can make that happen. But No, definitely, definitely, definitely. So uh, next guy moving up uh, was an extension deal. So right now, Jose Barrios is staying with the Blue Jays. And he's staying there for actually quite a long time. Signed a seven-year $131 million extension with the Blue Jays. So honestly, a really you know good job for the Blue Jays to keep him. One thing I see about his stats, Alex, is that he gets innings every single year. You know, when it comes to getting up into the 190s, the 200 inning mark, that's something, of course, that, that Toronto would love to have, especially with the offense that is growing and is young and getting better and better and better. Um, I honestly think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. might have a better year than he had last year and, you know, in his career sometime, which is kind of just nuts to think about sure. you know how successful he was last year but getting a guy like Barrios for a good uh contract you know I think it's 18.7 million AAV so really like that deal for Barrios for being honestly probably a two or a three guy over there for the next seven years right now he could be their number one because if they don't sign the guys that they have in you know free agency right uh, if Ray walks Ray walks and you know they don't have him coming back he could be the opening day starter but I could see him kind of transitioning to the two and three guy but Thoughts on that one, Alex? Yeah, I think overall, uh, it's interesting. I I feel like you don't... Seven years seems like a long time, right? Yeah. He's a young guy, so uh, there's plenty of time to continue growing and continue kind of, you know, leveling up uh, what he's able to accomplish. But yeah, the last few seasons, Travis, he's been very good. He had a 4.4 Fangraphs war in 2019, and then in the short 2020, he had over one war, which was obviously a short season. That, that's very solid, being over one war. And then a 4.1 uh, Fangraphs war this season. Um, a lot to like in his numbers, uh, consistently hovering around four year rate or below and getting big innings. I think Tampa Bay, or sorry, uh, Toronto knew the value in that. Um, it's a great point because 
sometimes these guys have crazy upside, but if they don't get the innings, the value is not going to be there. So um, if he can continue to be healthy and continue to be, you know, this kind of, you know, well above average pitcher, um, the sky's the limit, really. He, I think he could be their one guy in, in a couple seasons. Um, but yeah, like like you said, we'll have to wait and see uh, how much they're going to push it. Because I do think, Travis, Toronto Blue Jays have a huge chance to win the division next season and for the years to come. Oh, yeah. If they can kind of stack up the rotation, the bullpen. Because the bats, nothing to add. Nothing to add, right? You have Guerrero. I mean, of course, you want to keep Semyon. Yeah. And no, if definitely. he leaves, have someone else at second base. Have someone else that would be really good. But... Just looking at the futures ahead of Bichette and Guerrero are going to be monster careers, potentially. Um, Springer, he missed a lot of the season last year, but when he was there, he was awesome. I think he is kind of a top 10 MVP kind of guy, just when he's able to play a full season almost automatically. Um, Teoscar Hernandez, great power hitter. So much like... Even Biggio. I know he had a down year, but I think he'll have a bounce back year. Sure, yeah. He's got great like play discipline skills and and, uh, other great things going for him. The the versatility, second base, third base, outfield. but yeah, I think there's so much going for their them offensively. They need, they realize that their need is to lock down some pitchers. They obviously have Ryu to a nice deal, but he had a down year, so they said, okay, we need to make sure we reinforce the rotation a bit. Um, so yeah, they decided to shell out money for Barrios, and so good for him. He got paid um, in a big way. So I would think overall, it's a good deal for both sides. Um, it's just gonna come down to how much more they can add to try mm-hmm. to compete with that really stacked division. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Alex, one guy I want to talk about to see if you thought it was a good deal or not, and that is Justin Verlander staying with the Houston Astros. So kind of a surprise. I think everyone thought that he was going to be out of Houston. I think a lot of people, you know, he actually came out in uh, a lot of the reporters came out and said that he wants to go to a team that has spring training in Florida. So usually that's just an East Coast team. Astros are the only West Coast team or West Western division team that is in Florida. But uh Ended up coming out, I think it was either Thursday or Friday, that Verlander is staying in Houston. Uh, right now, he is on a one-year. I know there's a player option, too, but he's on a one-year $25 million deal. All I'm going to say is that seems a little high, uh, but I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on the, on the, on the basically the contract. Yeah, so uh, I think, like you said, it's 25 for the first year, and it's a player option. So if he, wants to, if he does a, has a stinker of a year... Which you know, hard to say what's gonna happen when you're, you know, how old is he? I think thirty nine, or he's up there. He'll be, uh, he'll be thirty nine this February. Yep. Okay, so a thirty nine year old uh, who just missed the last two seasons because of Tommy John. Was it Tommy John? Tommy John has not pitched since that twenty nineteen. Really has not pitched since that twenty nineteen World Series. He pitched one, you know, six inning game, the first game of twenty twenty. But looked I think, good. I think we'll, but I, it's he looked good. But I think we'll all kind of just throw that away and just be yeah. like, yeah, I mean, yeah, one so, game. So. With that in mind, uh, a lot of uncertainty in my mind. It's a similar situation to Syndergaard, except Syndergaard, you know, there's more... He's 10 years younger. There's more future ahead, and there's probably more healing power in that body. Yep. Um, different bodies will react different ways to that kind of surgery. And I'm sure the Astros would not have done the deal unless they... Obviously, teams saw him work out, and they liked what they saw. He was hitting, you know, mid to upper 90s in the fastball. Uh, so it's not like he was, you know, this diminished player. It's just personally... I was concerned. I really wasn't. He was not high on my list for the Angels. Angels to go get him. I just feel like if I'm gonna shut out big bucks, you know, twenty five plus AAV, I would really hope that it's a guy who I can kind of trust to be part of our winning window the next few seasons. The Astros, it makes a bit more sense because they know that the division in two, three, four years, there's some uncertainty. But the next season, two seasons. 
they're going to be a threat because they have so much talent um, on their team currently. Yep. We saw we saw them in the World Series just last season, so um, only losing, I believe, Carlos Correa. Uh, so I think with all this in mind, it's not a bad deal. It does seem a bit high for me, especially you're committing to that. I, th- I think it's another $25 million on the second year if he picks up that option. So if he ends up not being able to really kind of get back that, that magic from 2019, then we're looking at $50 million going to a guy who might not be a huge contributor, which seems like a lot. But um, at the end of the day, uh, they showed loyalty to him. And, you know, I can't knock it at all. It could end up being a great move if he just ends up pulling like a Max Scherzer and just shows to get, you know, better with age practically. So, um, yeah, I think overall it's hard to evaluate because there's all this question marks with the, the injury and the recovery process. But tons of teams went and saw him, and tons of teams were offering him money. So um, I think the fact that he is with the Astros, I think the Astros are probably very happy with that. The whole the whole Florida thing is kind of funny. I think he has a place mm-hmm. in Florida. Mm-hmm. I think that's why the Braves were in on him, because Atlanta's pretty close. Which I was going to bring up and say that would have been... Imagine that rotation. That'd be pretty. That, that, <laughs> I don't even know who's your one or two or three. Verlander could be your five, and it's like, yeah. we got to face Verlander today. It's just, yeah. But it, it, it's odd to me that the free eight or sorry the uh the spring training location was that big of a factor like i don't know you're, yeah. not, you're not in spring training for that long of the i know year, it's like i i feel like playing in arizona in my opinion might be better than florida in i think it's in, just a place in march because i mean you're still getting rain and it probably maybe the humidity is still pretty you know getting awful but march in arizona is beautiful and so yeah it's funny that that kind of was a factor you're right and Everyone was kind of even thinking, you know, wow, he could be going back to the Tigers. Tigers could get Rodriguez and Verlander. What a start to the offseason for their pitching staff. Um, but, no, I mean, Astros, like you said, they know that they still have about, you know, two years, I'd say, is still the window. I know Gurriel and Brantley are definitely getting older. And then they don't yeah. know, of course, about Bregman in the future. Bregman could be asking for a really high contract if he can kind of get back on track to what he was doing in 18 and 19. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Astros still know that this is their division. They still can prove it that, you know, the, and the pitching staff still is very good. You know, McCullers, uh, Frember Valdez, and even Luis Garcia, who we saw last year, was just phenomenal. That's still a very good, uh, you yeah. know, four-man rotation right there. So uh, interesting to see if they are going to go out and add anyone else. I know they had some people, you know, speculating on the shortstop market that they might even go out and get, like, a Trevor Story to replace Correa. So interesting to see what we see there from how the Astros keep on, you know, um, chipping away because I know I think that the last two um, you know World Series they were in I, I know they were they were the favorites going into them and losing both of them I think that they kind of still have to prove to everyone that they are you know they, they still are a team to wreak havoc and still you know win a championship um, so I, I, I still think the Astros are not done and uh, Verlander was just kind of a, a small part of what they're going to do this offseason but Alex, let's move on now to the Giants. The Giants uh, actually got two guys um, in the past week. One was actually like, I think, three hours ago, and the other one was, I think, last Wednesday or Tuesday. But we'll start with Anthony DiSclefani, just signing about three hours ago, a three-year deal, $36 million, about $12 million AAV. Um, I guess my thoughts on it are... You know, he had success in San Francisco, so you might as well not leave, you know, and especially in the pitcher's ballpark, you know, 3.17 ERA, a better ERA than Garrett Cole was Di Scalfani. Uh, You know, he was up there in career highs with, you know, had two shutouts this year, almost had um, a career high in innings pitched, definitely the career high in ERA and wins this year. So he definitely had a career year 
in San Francisco. And so, you know, you might as well not leave. And so I, I, I really don't think much of the deal. I think it's a good start for the Giants to kind of um, presume their, you know, what they think is, is their dominance of the division. I don't think it's going to be the same deal as last season, next season. I think that they might have had a little bit of magic there with the Giants. We'll have to see. And now Buster Posey's leaving. So um, thoughts, I think, on the Di Scalfani uh, deal so far. Yeah, I think overall it makes sense to stay put in the place where you kind of found success. Obviously, the Giants were doing something right last year. And if they can get the players to kind of buy in and stick around, it'll be great for their staying power in the division. I think no one really expects them to do what they did last year, to do it again this year, especially because guys like Gosman are free agents. And then, of course, Posey now retiring. A lot of kind of different news uh, kind of coming up. Brian, of course, will be a free agent, uh, still waiting to figure out where he's going to land. So a lot of uncertainty with the Giants. So it feels good for them, I'm sure, to lock down some pitchers that they kept around. Um, yeah, Travis, okay, I guess go ahead and give me your thoughts as well on the Diesel Funny deal. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, like you said too, stay where you're going to have the success. I think there's really no reason why you need to leave because, yeah, I mean, the team won 107 wins and you won a division title and, you know, you were a big piece in that pitching staff. So, um, and, and why wouldn't you want to go play with Logan Webb, you know, continue to grow with him as well. So uh, I think it's a good move. Um, Alex, the next deal that they had this past week was Brandon Belt. Brandon Belt was actually, I think, the only one to accept the qualifying offer. So I think it was $18.4 million for one year um, that he accepted. And so the Giants will be getting their first baseman back, who's been a Giant his whole entire career, um, just played his age 33 season. So he's getting up there in age, and he knows that I think that, that maybe in the future, maybe a three-year deal might be the most he'll get. Um, possibly next season, and depending on how he does next next or this next season coming up. But Alex, one thing that really stuck out to me was the last two seasons. I know Brandon Belt has been on the injury bug a lot. In 2020, there's only 60 games. Of course, he played 51 games. This season, he only played 97 games of the 162. I think I sent you this, but it basically he played about one full season. If you look at 20 and 21, you look at those stats. Alex Brandon Belt put together, I mean, 148 game season the last two two years, he put together one hell of a stat line. I mean, you look it's, at 38 it's, it's home runs, yeah. 89 RBIs, a 285 average, a 393 on base, a 595 slugging, almost a 1000 OPS, a 988 and a 165 OPS plus. This guy just had I think one of the most under the radar sneaky full seasons if you'd put it together that you know we've seen out of some of these guys and it, it's kind of funny because i know people were talking about brendan belt if he declined it what does his market look like right you know a guy like the maybe maybe the yankees are in on them or on brendan belt but i know a lot of people say that olsen you know olsen and yankees those need to be two parties that come together so really interesting to see a guy like him uh you know have such he has such high potential and he had a great past couple years and I just feel like people were really kind of like putting him down it's, it's kind of interesting that you look at these stats and they're pretty incredible but what are your thoughts on him going back to the Giants yeah I, I think he did a great job of recapping all his you know the greatness he's done the last two the last two seasons which pretty much combines for a one full season um I totally agree a 165 OPS plus in the last uh, 2020 and 21 combined that I I think I saw the stat on Twitter um I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was like the third or fourth best OPS plus for a certain number of games played required. So guys mm-hmm. like Mike Trout wouldn't yep. qualify. Um, it was one of the top three or four in baseball. And that, that there's one reason why that is definitely a thing. Um, 
only only 560 plate appearances. He does tend to get pinch hit for against lefties. Mm -hmm. Giants do use a platoon system, so he's going to face more of a favorable matchup. But still, you're playing in that ballpark and you're still putting up those numbers. It's a very impressive... uh, very impressive milestones for him, I guess, these last two seasons. And uh, what I'll add, Travis, is pretty much echoing what you said. Matt Olson is all over the place in trade uh, discussion. The Yankees want him. Tons of teams want him. Uh, Freddie Freeman is a free agent. These are two of the best left-handed hitting first basemen in baseball for the last couple seasons. So the market for a belt, I guess you could think, okay, maybe whoever wanted Olsen can come get me instead. But I think just staying with uh, San Francisco makes a lot of sense because they know how to use you and you don't have to go compete for money with guys like Freeman and Olsen. I don't think you want to be in that kind of market trying exactly. to trying to compete with those guys who've had monster years themselves. So overall, Belt, a great player uh, that has had a very surprising last two seasons. Um, if he can keep that going, then the, you know, the Giants are really doing something right up there. Travis, one more thing to add on Giants. They did also able to keep Alex Wood. This was announced just a couple hours ago. That's right. Okay. Um, so Alex Wood, uh, I'm pulling up the deal right now. It looks like it is a $10 million, uh, yeah, sorry, $10 million uh, AAV annually, and it's a two-year deal. So, so that seems like overall, years, mil, okay. overall great value. I think a pitcher like his his caliber, uh, getting him you know for $10 million a year seems like I think that's overall uh, a good pickup. Uh, I guess a good a good to retain him. Um, I want. I'm still wondering what happens with Gosman because Gosman is like kind of that number one piece, and these guys all kind of stack up behind him, right below him, right. Yeah. So if Gosman does not return and they can't really replace Gosman, then the rotation is looking a little bit. You know, uh, I'm not so sure. Of course, Webb can be can be an ace next season. Webb will probably be their opening day starter. I think that every giant wants to say that too. Is that you know Gosman is was their ace for the past couple seasons. And he's a great pitcher, but I think that Logan Webb, what he did last year in the postseason, I think everyone's going to think he's going to be their opening day starter. But, no, I mean, you're so right with with the whole Gosman thing. I know they've they've been talking um, on Twitter about, you know, Giants and even Alex Cobb, Angels pitcher Alex Cobb. So could be the guy that maybe is a replacement for Gosman, and then they end up, you know, Gosman has to end up going out and, you know, exploring the market. But um, we'll see what happens there, yeah. Yeah, overall, I think there's a lot to like about Wood um, in retaining him. Cobb, another interesting guy you mentioned, I think he would honestly thrive in uh, San Francisco, that ballpark. Um, Cobb had a great FIP last season. I think, you know, keeping the ball on the ground and also, you know, being able to be in San Francisco is going to keep his ERA pretty low. But, yeah, Giants have some, you know, things to still figure out. Uh, Still some guys that are free agents um, from their 2021 roster. Um, But, Travis, who's next on our to-do list? Um, I didn't know if you wanted to cover the um, the pretty much the, the the hype of the new Japanese player. Oh right, uh, that yeah. Has, you know, a lot of MLB teams are um, are wondering about. So so yeah. So uh, for those that don't know, there's a Japanese uh, Japanese league player named uh, Seiya Suzuki, and he is currently being posted. There's a called a posting process, which there's just a window of time essentially where the Japanese league is going to allow you to meet with MLB teams and try to make a deal with an MLB team. I believe it starts at some point this week. Um, Maybe it's next week, but then it goes until like December 20-something, and that is the window of time MLB teams can try to make a deal with Seiya Suzuki. Also, they have to pay a posting fee, so with MLB MLB team will actually have to pay money to his current team in Japan. Kind of funny how that works, Mm -hmm. but um, essentially, Travis, Seiya Suzuki, I think there's a lot to... 
like about what he's been able to do in the Japan League the last couple seasons. Um, pulling up his numbers right now. Trevor, just looking at what he's been able to do uh, in the last, since 2016 really to present day for the Hiroshima Carp. I'm looking at a uh, 996 OPS in 2016. Then 2017, it's a 936. And then he gets over 1,000 with a, a, a 1064 in, a, in 2018. And then 2019, it's a, a 1018 OPS. And then just uh, this last season in 2021, Travis, he had a 1075 OPS. These are just MVP numbers. If that was able to translate even remotely to the major league uh, baseball level, we're talking about, you know, an all-star for sure. Definitely. It's like it just year after year, he's putting up these really remarkable, you know, high 900s OPSs. Uh, I, I was talking to my, my former roommate, Travis, actually, and he was from Japan, and he still lives there, and he was telling me that uh, Seiya Suzuki has pretty much been the best right-handed hitter in the Japan League for the last five seasons straight. So hmm. thinking about that, Travis, I just kind of want to flip the idea to you. Which teams do you think could be in on a right fielder who has, I believe he has a solid arm, but you're really getting him for just, he's going to mash, mash from the right-handed batter's box. So what kind of team do you think really has that kind of fit where they could be looking to get a guy like this? Yeah, one, I know my son a little corny, but uh, I, I'm actually going to say the Seattle Mariners. Yeah. Um, because I know Seattle next season uh, has a lot of young um, prospects that are, you know, suited to be at the outfield uh, position for the Mariners. I know it's Jared Kelnick. I think it's Julio Rodriguez is his name. And then also uh, Kyle Lewis, who we saw in 2020 with an absolute breakout monster uh, rookie season. Um, you know, I think signing a guy like Suzuki for that team, also with the Ichiro ties to, you know, Japan and those Japanese leagues, um, I could see that being kind of a good fit for both sides because they would get a right-handed hitter that is kind of, you know, almost a seasoned veteran and, you know, can really kind of maybe honestly show some of those younger talent guys kind of the way. And honestly, it's always nice to have a four-man outfield. That way, if injuries happen, maybe one of those guys like Kelnick or Julio Rodriguez really isn't showing um, or being, you know, being promised. You have at least that backup option for Suzuki. Um, he can kind of be the backup for all those guys. So I think that's honestly one team that really rings a bell uh, when, you know, I think about, you know, outfielders that you might need for next offseason. I don't think Mitch Hanniger is going to be coming back. And so the Mariners, if they really want to compete um, and be, you know, uh, a team to be threatened next year in the American League West, uh, getting a guy like that I think would be honestly a great signing. I think it's just honestly with the whole Ichiro ties to Seattle, um, that would be a good spot because I know Ichiro would probably be very influential in helping that guy um, you know, kind of go through, live the Seattle life, anything, if he needed help with anything. Also, of course, Otani playing on the West Coast as well could be a cool option where maybe he reaches out to that, you know, of those sorts. But it'd be really fun to have Suzuki and Otani playing against each other almost every single uh, year for about 18 games. Yeah, that yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Of course, the Ichiro Suzuki, uh, I guess that connection makes a lot of sense. Also, I like that you mentioned Hanniger. Hanniger is someone who definitely could leave in free agency. Um Hanager has been their right-handed bat for the last few seasons in the outfield. That might be gone, so Suzuki could be the perfect kind of replacement. They could put him in right or left field, and it could be a match made in heaven. So now, uh, yeah, Alex, let's transition kind of into the next part of the of the episode. Um, the awards. The awards that came out last week. Uh, we had Rookie of the Year. We had Manager of the Year. We had Cy Young, and then we also had the MVP. So I guess I'll kind of just start. We'll go through each award, and, you know, if you have any, you know, beef, I would say, with any of the awards 
the, the players that got selected. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about maybe the, the players that, you know, we actually did think about uh, during our bets during Vegas and, you know, what we thought back then and if it actually came true and we walked away with some uh, some cash. So uh, let's start with the rookie of the year. Uh, those two players that won were Jonathan India and then Randy Arena. So the Cincinnati Reds and the Tampa Bay uh, I almost said Buccaneers, but Tampa Bay Rays. And so both those guys winning. Um, Alex, I really didn't have too much of beef with that one. I guess the only thing I thought that uh, should have happened was Trevor Rogers winning the Rookie of the Year for the Marlins. So um, nothing too crazy. I, I mean, a Rosarena, I mean, wow. The 2020 postseason that he had and then that transition into 2021, he was the favorite going in. I think Vegas's odds definitely had him. His teammate, Wander Franco, kind of made it interesting. But I think with playing the full season, that put Randy over the top to win it. And then Jonathan India, I know he was a good contact machine. I think a lot of people thought that he was going to come into the MLB in, in about 2022, maybe 2023. But he came on in 2021 and had a fantastic year. Um, I guess the last thing is, is that I thought Trevor Rogers had a great year as well for the Marlins. Uh, a 2.64 ERA. I mean, he literally had an ERA below some of the guys that were up for the Cy Young in the National and the American League. So um, thoughts on Rookie of the Year for you? Yeah, um, I think overall the two picks made a lot of sense. Uh, Rodgers, I think I picked Rodgers when we did our postseason kind of recaps yep, for the NL. That's right. But um, overall, I think maybe the 133 innings pitched, I thought it was a smaller sample size. I think the second half of the season, he kind of slowed up on – the workload, they're kind of don't want to mm-hmm. let's not burn this guy yep. pushing for rookie of the year just so that we can, uh, you know, have one good season for him and then lose him potentially down the line. Let's save him for when we're, we're trying to compete for the division versus this season. The Marlins were really doing that. So, um, overall, I think India, you look at his numbers, you can say that is easily a rookie of the year kind of season. He was a great walker this year, his, his on base was uh, a lot higher than any other rookie that I uh, that I saw. So um, overall, I'm happy with the India pick. That's fine with me. And then Rosarena, um, yeah, I think he was the probably most common pick for people coming into the season, just looking at his postseason last year. Mm-hmm. If you see his numbers, you might say, oh, that's, that's not postseason, Randy. But it, it, it doesn't really matter, right? Because no, yeah. those numbers were as good as any other rookie. Um, 20 home runs, 20 steals. That's pretty incredible yeah. for a rookie season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a lot to... You know, like about those guys' future, um, and overall, yeah, I think both picks. We didn't make any. We didn't make any Vegas bets on rookie of the year, but oh, mm-hmm. both those guys, you know, Rosarena would have not made us that much money because he was the favorite, and mm-hmm. I don't think either of us saw India coming. So yeah, rookie of the year ones for Vegas are definitely you know hard because guys get get sent down. Um, you know, right. guys just don't produce, and it's it's like you know you'll go back down to AAA. So it's always kind of a, it's almost just more of like pick the name out of the hat and put a bet on that than really kind of think, okay, who could be a, a good, uh, you know, person to, to take this award this year. But I, I think if we had to pick Travis, we would have probably gone with like a Sixto Sanchez yeah. or like a Cabrian Hayes, like definitely. Andrew Vaughn, guys that were not really even in the running going on. Definitely, line. definitely. Uh, moving to manager of the year, Alex, I thought this was kind of a slam dunk. These were the two names that made the most sense. Yeah. Um, Gabe Kapler for the 107 win San Francisco Giants, and then Kevin Cash for the franchise record 100 win Tampa Bay Rays. Both guys were phenomenal. Both guys had first round exits, but both guys had unbelievable seasons. Um, Kapler, I mean, shocked the world. Kevin Cash just continued to, he, he lost players last year, 
but he still managed to win 100 games and set the franchise record for the race. So thoughts on those two names? Yeah, I think Cash was like the biggest home run pick. I, I could see them not giving it to him because I think he won it last year. And yeah, the only guy would be service for, or, or I think it's Scott Service for the yeah. Mariners is the only guy that I was thinking maybe he's got a shot. Yeah, Right, and I think it just comes down to the fact that you look at Cash, not only did you lose players in the offseason, you traded away Snell, um, and then despite that all, you start out decently to the season, you lose Glass now. He's been your ace, he was your all-star he was in Zion contention. Now your rotation is all full of a bunch of guys who a lot of people might not even know their names. Yeah. And they call up rookies. They still get the job done. They manage their bullpen exceptionally well. Um, they call up Franco at the right time, and he makes a big impact. So um, top to bottom, the Rays um, just had an amazing regular season, and Cash was a big part of that. So I think he was a home run pick, of course. And, of course, the Giants season was something that – We'll, I think there'll be documentaries about it someday just yeah. because no no one saw it coming. We'll see what they can continue next season, year after, if they can maintain it in any way. But this season, all those veterans kind of uh, having either bounce back years or having breakout years or, you know, Longoria actually being, you know, serviceable. No one, I think no one saw that kind of thing coming. Yeah. No one saw, uh, I guess, the Crawford kind of resurgence coming, getting lots, exactly. of, lots of MVP votes. A big part of that is having a manager who they all liked and who they all could get behind. I'm sure Kapler was that force in the clubhouse. So uh, him being able to get what he did out of the, that Giants team, I think, uh, made it such an easy lock. I don't remember seeing like the voting, but I think both of those, both of those could have very easily probably been unanimous, and I would have no complaints with that. Easily, easily, no, definitely. Um, moving to the kind of the more exciting part of the voting, the Cy Young. Cy Young and MVPs, are, of course, are the ones that I think you really pay the most attention to because those are uh, those are definitely the awards that are uh, you know. A lot. Everyone is is able to eligible to, to receive those awards. So Cy Young, though, that going to Corbin Burns and Robbie Ray. Alex, I know you uh, you really like that Corbin Burns uh, pick. Hundred <laughs> percent. So yeah, um, I think that obviously there is some level of bias because I picked him to win Cy Young going into, going into the season in Vegas. I had him as a uh, I think I put ten dollars on him, uh, and I did get a big nice payout. I'm very happy with that, but. Uh, trying to remove the bias and just kind of compare Corbin Burns, Zach Wheeler, Max Scherzer, the three finalists. I just really like Burns' case. Um, I actually even wrote an article about it on Max's Sporting Studio. But um, I think that a lot of the advanced stats behind what Burns was able to do, I think it makes up for the inning gap. I, I do. I just think that the Wheeler was a workhorse for sure. And Scherzer was kind of in the middle in innings and also still had a good ERA kind of. But... Um, overall, I think Burns, I mean, a historic FIP, one of the best in the live ball era, I think only behind um, Pedro, 1999. Um, and I think just everything else he was able to do in terms of, you know, a lot of balls in play did not go his way, and he still managed to have the best ERA in baseball. And just a lot of great things were going for him, limiting hits, limiting walks, getting strikeouts, limiting homers. Um, so much went his way. Uh so much was good for him that I just I am so I was so relieved that he ended up getting the award. Travis, one thing I'll add about it, I saw some stat and there's tons of conversation all over the internet right about Wheeler versus uh, Burns. At what point do we have to value innings more? Are we valuing innings not enough when we give Burns the uh, award? Because I think it was like a sixty innings or something, forty something innings gap between the two. It's a pretty big gap. It's like several several starts, yeah. right? Mm-hmm gap between two guys and you give the guy the less innings 
And I saw an interesting way that someone put it. I think it was Jeremy Frank on Twitter. He put it in a unique perspective saying, is it really that much more valuable when Wheeler pitched 40-something more innings, but in those extra innings, the ERA... Essentially, this, let me try to explain it better. Essentially, if Corbin Burns pitched like enough innings to catch up to Wheeler in innings pitched... Yep he would have had to have a 4.1-something ERA mm. in those innings, and then they would have been exactly tied. Okay. So is that really more valuable to have yeah. that many more innings but at a worse rate, essentially? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, no, it doesn't make sense, yeah. So when I put it in that light, I say, okay, I don't want Burns pitching those extra innings. Sounds like an Angels pitcher right there with a 4-plus ERA. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's, it seems like I don't want my starting pitcher to essentially be doing those extra innings if it's going to be at a more medium level than away from your Cy Young level. So obviously if Wheeler threw less innings, his ERA would probably go down, but that's the way it goes. And I just am very happy with the Burns pick. Um, Travis, give me your thoughts on the Burns-Wheeler race and Scherzer as well, I guess. Yeah, and you put it in a good way because um, innings pitch, I'm a big, you know, I, I like to see innings pitched. Um, I think also you have to look at the team that you have. I mean, the Brewers have a bullpen that is like no other. Devin Williams and Josh Hader, you know, I think that Craig Council would love to have all of his starting pitchers give him six, seven innings and just say, we got two dogs in the bullpen that are going to finish this job and get a win. Because at the end of the day, the manager doesn't care about your Cy Young votes. He cares about the wins for, for his team. And so something that the Phillies don't have is a good bullpen. And so right. I think they had, Girardi had to give Wheeler the ball and say, can you please go out there and give us eight, nine innings every single time out there? I just don't want to see our bullpen take the field when it comes to late in the ball game yeah. after how many games they've blown the past couple of years. So that's, I think, one factor too. Um, I think there's, there's definitely a lot more things you might have to dig into when it comes to the stats and the reasons why, oh, this guy might have, you know, less innings pitched than this other guy. Um, you know, looking even at like the New York Yankees, they had a uh, bullpen that was, I mean, it was, you know, it, looking on paper last year, it was stellar on paper. I mean, um, you go down the list, it's almost like you could have every every starting pitcher leave after the fifth inning and they just have the next guy up, the next guy up, the next guy up. So I think also looking at that, that has to factor in a lot. I was very surprised. I thought, of course, um, you know, I thought Burns was the most consistent from opening day to the last game of the season. He really was a consistent workhorse throughout the season. Um, I remember he had that huge, uh, I think it was like, wasn't didn't walk a guy streak earlier right. in the season that was just kind of like oh my god like you can't even do this in a video game I mean, people yeah. in video games can't do this stuff so it was like seven or eight starts into the season he was very consistent same with wheeler i of course thought wheeler was worse than burns this season so that was one thing um scherzer of course coming over from washington to la i thought that was going to be a big you know a big thing for the voters to say oh he had he had the narrative such, he had such a great ending to his you know his he had hit a hollywood ending to his season and so he was unbelievable in the second half he actually had a lot of hiccups the last couple starts of the season i think that honestly might have really cost him i just remember he played the rockies and he played or pitched against the rockies and pitched against the padres both of those starts i think he gave up three or four runs in the first three innings or something like that so it really wasn't a clean ending to his season i really wonder if that was a huge factor in the voting but um if you look at it Burns had the most consistent and the best season altogether. Really happy that he won it. Happy that the Milwaukee Brewers got a guy to get the the voting. I think that they've been, uh, besides the Ryan Braun vote, but I thought they got kind of got snubbed for some of the votes in the past couple of years. So um, really happy that he got it. 
uh, was really surprised that actually Wheeler got more votes than Scherzer, got more points when it came to the total. So uh, that was a surprise to me. But you know what? I mean, if you're not first, you're last. That's kind of like, my, that's I guess, my take and the pitcher's takes too. They're not really going to – I mean, they, they can definitely care if they finish second or third um, in the voting. But, you know, Burns, Burns was definitely the top and most deserving. And then, of course, going to the AL, Robbie Ray, he was the most deserving too. I think people wanted to give it to Cole, but it would be kind of weird because he had such a down year for Garrett Cole – and I think voters were just thinking, we can't give it to him because the last couple starts were just, they were questionable. And then, of course, they don't vote in the playoffs. They don't go off playoff numbers. But that wild card game, I mean, that was definitely a big, you know, who, who is this guy? Who is, who is Garrett Cole? What, what, is he, what has he done? And so um, I think that the ending month, I know we even said in the podcast early in September, the last couple starts, this is really what's going to make these guys Cy Young um, run. So uh, Robbie Ray was spectacular down the end, and you know he deserved the award, um, even though some people, of course, really wanted to give it to Cole because he has does not have one um, on his resume yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it also comes down to this thing, Travis. Uh, uh, so first of all, ERA-wise, 3.23 in 2021 for Cole, that's his worst since leaving Pittsburgh. Yeah. So mm-hmm. highest ERA since uh, 2017 uh, with Houston uh, in two seasons, and then his first year in New York was in the twos for okay. ERA. Yeah. This year, a 3-2-3. But his FIP and some other stats were below three. They were down in the twos. So it kind of shows that, you know, he still is the same guy. It's just, you know, some things did not go his way this season. And then I think an injury down the stretch might have uh, – kind of worsened him, weakened him. You know, that's kind of speculation, but, you know, whatever it may be. Also spider attack maybe too, so. There definitely is an adjustment period there, right? I think a lot of pitchers in the middle of the season when they banned spider attack, started regulating sticky stuff, even pine tar on, on, like, the glove or stuff, they started regulating that. I think every single pitcher had to adjust a little bit. It took a little bit of time for some, more more some than others. And, and it makes me think, too, if they would have done – for me, if they would have done the responsible thing and would have enforced those rules maybe now, and they would have given the pitchers the offseason to work on – Offseason and know, spring training. Because you look at guys like – a guy like Tyler Glass now, he was doing unbelievable. He was definitely one of the guys that was probably up for the AL Scion. He was having a spectacular year, got injured right after he had to change his whole entire pitching – you know, format. And so yeah. you really wonder about some of these guys, how their seasons would have gone if they would have kept, you know, on doing that. Even looking at DeGrom, maybe DeGrom had something that really kind of, you know, interfere with his pitching, you know, mechanics and all that with, with all that stuff involved. So interesting to kind of see how that had that really transpired throughout the season. Yeah. And so I think it really comes down to in the, AM, in the American League, um, Garrett Cole had the a substantially higher ERA than Robbie Ray. But a lot of the other kind of advanced stats uh, really liked Cole over Ray. So it really comes down to, Travis, um, what matters. And I think for the Cy Young, do you care about how many runs were scored against you? Or do you care about like, oh, you allowed a lot of lots of weak contact but got unlucky? And like, I think overall, if you say I care about runs and that's it, more guys scored against you, Cole, than Ray. That's fine. Give the award to Ray. I have no problem with that. So no, you that, care about wins, right? No. No. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Definitely a stat that is definitely, uh, you know, it's it's the outcome of your offense. So I, I know they, they mentioned that a lot of voters still keep that in mind. And I was kind of just thinking they should be smarter than that now. I mean, wins wins are good. Wins are cool. But, I mean, if I think Brandon Woodruff had 10 wins. I think he had a losing record. I think he had but a losing I record. I think he was top five in Cy Young because his numbers were so good, but it was just like he had a losing record. But, yeah. I mean, you can't that, blame that. That's just sheer bad luck. 
you were on a really good team and they didn't show up when you were pitching. Look at look at Jacob Degrom the last five years. He'll tell you everything about his offense. Of course, so, yeah, come to the Angels. So, at the end of the day, I think Ray uh, made a lot of sense. I think most people saw that coming. And I guess with that being said, I think we on to MVPs, Travis. MVPs and these two guys, uh, me and you actually both bet on in March, so we were both were very happy, and both guys were very deserving. That is Bryce Harper of the Phillies and Shohei Otani of the Angels. Um, Alex, you know, Harper put together the second half that was necessary, that was that was needed to win him the award, I thought. Um, Soto had a kind of a slow start, and he did put together, again, a, a, a good second half. I think some of the numbers in September were absolutely ridiculous when it comes to the walking and some of the on-base streaks. It was just insane for Soto. Uh, and then Tatis. Tatis was the clear favorite, I think, in July. End of July kind of being that clear favorite. Gets injured. We don't know if we're going to see him for the rest of the season. And then also with the Padres kind of, you know, trending downwards with wins, not really looking like a good team, a really bad situation in San Diego. Uh, I really thought that that was where Harper and the Phillies kind of started trending in the right direction. That's what really transpired in him winning the award, and I thought it was a very, it was the correct pick. And then with Shohei, I don't really want to talk too much about that because yeah. I mean, I, people have argued and tried to argue, but it just does not work. Um, when you're an all-star pitcher and an all-star hitter in the same body, um, you put together a pretty significant and special season uh, for the all-time numbers. And so um, both guys heavily deserved it. Really happy Shohei was unanimous. I don't know. I don't think Harper was unanimous, but I think he got, of course, um, a pretty good percentage of the first place votes, which we pretty much translated into him getting a lot of the points. But um, your thoughts on the MVP? Yeah, I, I agree with both picks. Both guys, Harper and Otani, are the guys that I said in my mind, deserved the award when the season ended, when we when we discussed that on the podcast. Um, I like the way you broke down that way the race kind of trended uh, in the National League because Acuna gets injured, Very changes, right. changes the race. Tatis gets injured, changes the race again. And Soto and Harper both have these really great second halves. And in my mind, Harper edged them out, um, and that's what the voters agreed on. So overall... Uh, Harper, in my mind, had, you know, the bounce back year we saw coming, Travis. We both in Vegas said, we think Harper, we think he's due. He's had a really sneaky short season in 2020, and he got even better this season. So and You know what's kind of funny is that I I think I, I think I told something someone about it, but Harper, in my mind, probably wouldn't have even gotten top three if he was in the AL. I think the AL was just so stacked that he possibly could have been four, five on the, on the voting um, it's really interesting when you look at that, how stacked the AL was. But continue on um, kind of the Otani, um, your thoughts on Otani. Yeah, so for Shohei, I think for obvious reasons, it was a complete lock. Um, he was a unanimous MVP winner, which we're both very happy about, of course. Historic year. Two, two unanimous MVPs for the Angels, Travis, this decade. Uh, no playoff wins. We're hoping to correct that very soon. <laughs> I think um, I saw some of that where they they tied maybe the um, or they remember the right behind the uh, from I think the from the, this century or it might be it might be for the past 30, 40 years. But I know us and the Giants um, have the most like MVPs in like a decade span or like a seven sure. year span or something right. like that. So um, it's always funny when you see that because it's just like okay, we're talking about two different players and the Giants had two different players, Kent and Bonds, and it's like they at least made it to the playoffs, went to the World Series. 
and we just we need to get you know we need to get we, back we, on the on, we need to win eighty five games. Yeah, and so Travis, and one more thing, I want to kind of cover a little bit before we move on. Of course, we've talked about Otani so much this year, and for good reason. But um, a couple of things that I bring up to you about Otani, I kind of want to hear your thoughts. One thing that came up to in my mind is people are saying on Twitter that Shohei might have set too high of a standard because he would have won the MVP this year with probably like a... I know you said your preseason, what you think. Yeah. I think looking back at everyone else's performances this year, I think a 3.75 ERA and above a 900 OPS, he probably wins the award. Yeah, easily. Instead, he got a 950-something yeah. OPS, yeah. and he has a 3, what, 3.13 ERA, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, with all this in mind... It's almost like if next season he's a little bit worse than he was this year, they're not going to give it to him. Yeah, you could be right, yeah. And so I think that if he was a little bit worse this year and then got better next year, he could go back-to-back or in the next couple seasons, right? But I think there's this... He almost put himself in a pickle. And it it, it, it doesn't really matter because we don't know how great he is, but it's almost just kind of funny how he overperformed our expectations by so much this season. I feel like he screwed himself going forward... If he does a three seven five ERA next year and like a eight eighty OPS, he's not gonna get top ten in MVP votes. I feel like he won't just because he, we all know how great this year was and he will not live up to that. I guess lofty twenty twenty one standards. What, what do you think of that? No, I definitely think that some guys they do that to themselves where they have just it's almost like a breakout incredible year and it's just like man, you set the standards for yourself that you know you might never even reach those those numbers again. I mean Shohei very easily could not could possibly never reach these marks ever again i mean honestly every single stat line he probably won't reach all in the same one season ever again you just have kind of that outlier incredible season um i think it's i think that the numbers you gave me you know 375 with maybe like a 900 ops i think it definitely could be a a good case that he could possibly be another top three mvp um, but but I mean you're right you, you you really don't know about the competition you know Mike Trout will be coming back hopefully yeah. Rendon will be coming back it'll be interesting to see if those three guys are, are hurting their other teammates chances at the MVP um, by you know competing against each other so um, right yeah right. It, it should be really interesting and you know I wonder what you know what, you know with Mike Trout on his MVP run tear um, you know he might I'm not saying he he hates Shohei and he has a threat now but you know he has a guy that really has a good shot at taking the MVPs if he continues to have these seasons where pitching is very good all-star level and and you know the hitting is all-star level too so uh really interesting kind of how you brought that up that you know he, he could have years that are a little bit of a drop-off and people are gonna be like he's not a top 10 MVP you know not not from that year that he had in 20 uh 21 so yeah. I, I think there's a bit of a history with that you people look at like different years like I think there was a Cal Ripken back-to-back he won MVP and then he actually did better than next season but got way less votes because voters kind of like oh like he like yeah. he was great like yeah. it just kind of get fatigued of him but yeah. Travis I had another thought that I wanted to write down and ask you about um People keep saying that Guerrero uh, would have been the MVP in any other season. People keep saying that, right? Guerrero, you know, Otani's been historic, so you have to give it to him. But any other year, Guerrero is the MVP. But I don't like the way people are saying that because if you put him, Travis, in any other year this decade, I do not think he wins the MVP. Like maybe like the Donaldson year, he's like very comparable. Yeah. But yeah. like, That's I, very true. I, I think most of those trout seasons are better. And then, of course, that Mookie Best 2018 is like, crazy crazy year the miggy years are obviously really crazy i think the last like 10 11 years like i just don't see how you could say guerrero is like 
should have been the MVP in like any year. But like, Guerrero had a very good year. It was a great, great breakout. And if he won the award because Otani like didn't uh, pitch well this year or something like that, he would have deserved it this year, I guess. But I think overall, you know, second place MVP is very warranted for the year he had. And um, I guess what what kind of year do you think it actually would have taken to be Otani this year? Like, what would oh, yeah. what, what would a Guerrero or Trout or something like that would have had to do to beat this Otani season? I feel like you have to have like a twelve hundred OPS or something crazy. Yeah, you literally took it right out. Of, you're in my brain, man. So, really? Uh, no, yeah, I think you need to be playing uh, either a shortstop, second base, or center field position somewhere where you know th- those numbers. Uh, only the elite of the elite have those insane numbers. I think you need to be playing one of those positions. And like you said, a 12 OPS where um, you're putting up, you know, mantle-like seasons. You're putting up maze, uh, you know, you're putting up bonds-like seasons and you're playing that spot. That, I think, would have easily taken, um, you know, it would have been, it would have put the voters into a almost a frenzy. You know, yeah. do I go with a guy that is Babe Ruth? We have not seen a season like this in 100 years. Or do I go with a guy that is putting together and, you know, maybe like a 10 war season or something like that, where it's just like, this guy has no weakness. I mean, base running or, you know, it's almost like if Tatis played center field, yeah. but he was a little bit better and he had the average up by like 340. And, you know, it's almost like if you had to win the batting title, you'd have to win the gold glove. You'd have to win all this stuff. You'd just have to be a threat. Um, almost if you, if you combine like a Tatis and Buxton player into one and put them in center field, that's the kind of player I think that you'd have to really take into consideration. But honestly, when you look at it, I think you definitely have to say this season that Shohei put together is so extremely higher than anybody else. We really can't give it to anybody else but him. What he did is absolutely, we have not seen this in 100 years. We have not seen someone do this this well in 100 years. And the guys that were doing it 100 years ago, I don't even know if they did it this good. I mean, we don't even know. Right. I mean, Babe Ruth wasn't stealing 25 bags. No. Babe Ruth wasn't, um, I know Babe Ruth was getting some triples, but the ballparks were designed a lot different back then where they had alleys that were, you know, triple alleys. But most ballparks now, I mean, the leader in triples might get, you know, four or five. I think Shohei had almost close to 10. So um, you're right when you go back to the whole entire, the historic of this season is honestly something that he probably will never live up to again. Could, but it's 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 so impressive that, you know, he's probably going to have a great year next year, but it probably will be a down year in some people's eyes. So, um, yeah, and, and you're right about the, the Vlad thing. I'm looking at the numbers. You know, I think in July he was the... Um, batting champion he had the batting title so i think everyone was thinking yeah. like oh my god this guy is leading in home runs batting title he could win the triple crown he could have an ops above you know a, like a 1100 ops with the with the triple crown the you know everything and i think people were like this is one of the best batting seasons you know of all time looking at it now a 311 average with pretty much a 1000 ops you know 48 home runs is very very good but he had a great year. He had a good hitting year, but I mean, defensively, I think he had a, a below average year. So right. you put it all together. You're, as just, an playing MVP. First, you're just playing first base. Yeah, it, it, it was a great season, but I don't think, like you said, I think Betts beats it. I think those Trout years beats it. I think in 2018, you know, that's arguably one of Trout's best hitting performance years, one of Trout's best years. He lost to Betts. Um, Vladdy probably, probably would have got third or would have been left off the voting. So. I, I think he could have been even below J.D. Martinez that yeah. year and Jose Ramirez. Yeah, and, so, and, and you look at those years, even even 20, 2019 when Trout won it, some of the other years that Trout won it, I think Trout still was the favorite. I mean, the guy I plays mean, center field and had the same exact numbers. So Yeah, yeah. A, a good point. And also, like, 
Bregman's 2019 was very, very good. Probably better than the year that Vladimir just had in my mind at least. Um, but yeah. I, I think we get caught up in, the, which I like, we get caught up in the home runs. I think everyone just thought, oh my God, 48 home runs. Oh, that yeah. is incredible. I'm trying to think the last time someone had 50 home runs. Um, I think it might have been Stanton, Stanton back I'm in uh, 2016 or something like that. So it's kind of interesting how when you near the 50 home run season, that is kind of like a, this is the best season, you know, we've seen in, you know, years. And so um, great year. Uh, looking forward to see what he does. But yeah, it's just. And then the one last thing I want to add on this, uh, one more kind of talking point is people will not stop bringing up that there needs to be like an MVP versus like most outstanding player or like uh, amazing season or whatever award. And people act people act like because Otani was not on a winning team, he's less valuable. Guys, I want you all to know, just, just one last time, in case anyone wasn't sure, Shoya Otani was the most valuable player. He wasn't just the most outstanding. If he was on the Blue Jays and Guerrero was on the Angels, the Angels record would be worse and the Blue Jays record would be better. It just would be. That's just like, you look at all the stats and they're just better for Otani in terms of like value, like, you know, war and win probability added, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it, it, it just kind of, people just, I guess, are very stubborn about like wanting to be from a winning team and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean, if you want it to be from a winning team because they play like more important games on the stretch and like they're in like a race and they kind of live up to the big like oh big August performance. That's kind of fine if you think that way. Then I can't tell you how to think, but you can't say that you know, Otani is most outstanding, but he's not the most valuable because how can it be valuable if the Angels are losing? That's not how value works in baseball. You're only one player can do so much to get a win for a team. So I try to always kind of rant about this, Travis, because I see different guys on MLB Network. I see the clips on Twitter. People kind of saying how Otani is outstanding but not valuable. It just makes no sense at all. Yeah, it's like, do you guys hear yourselves? Like, obviously, if you put Otani on a really good team, like, I mean, he'd be he's unanimous anyways. But you guys would have given him, you know, even that much more praise, even though he's having the same season. It is a different location. But Travis, I guess any last rants on that, you can get it out now. Yeah, retweet. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I I've heard them say that same thing. I think they just get so tired of Mike Trout and some of these guys not making the playoffs and they're just like we got to give it to a guy that's making the playoffs and it, it, it's 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 you know like, like you said they're they're playing meaningful games in july and august september well mike trout's not but it, it just it it doesn't make any sense i mean an mvp is an individual award getting to the playoffs that is a full 25-man roster achievement you need the pitching you need the defense you need the hitting mike trout can only give you two of those defense and hitting and he can only give you defense from the center field spot and hitting from the two three four it, spot of the lineup he it, can't he can't he cannot tell or he cannot make david fletcher get on for him in, or all these guys right. to do their job you know in, in basketball you can give the ball to lebron james every single play yeah. for 36 minutes out of the 48 minute game or whatever it is in baseball mike trout Otani, you can only bat one in every nine yeah you can't jump the order, right? Yep, it's not. Exactly. It's completely exactly. different. Apples and oranges. In, in football, they're going to give it to QB because he has his hands on every single play. In baseball, there's no player with their hands on every single play because pitchers have to skip starts or they yep. skip days, and then batters have to bat one in every nine. So it's just the way that it goes. And people who are tied to like the team performance aspect, 
it will Travis pretty soon we're gonna be talking about some of the best seasons ever. I think there are some really great seasons that didn't even win MVPs in the past because of team performance. But yep. we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Travis, I think that's pretty much everything on the awards. Yeah, good little rant. Uh, I know we, we can we can probably close that book for Shohei Otani because uh, he won it. He was the most deserving guy. Um, and so uh, kind of piggybacking off of that, we're going to transition into our next and uh, final kind of segment of the episode. And this is where, um, you know, we discuss kind of the player's from the past you know, about 100 years, I think we we discussed you know from 1900 to present day, we wanted to rank our top five best individual season performances of all time. It could be the greatest, it could be the best. I know me and Alex had a, some definitions that we we thought were different when it yeah. about the greatest and the best. But um, you know, kind of going off of the whole Shohei season, me and Alex wanted to give you guys kind of what we thought were the best five uh, seasons of all time. Um, you know years and players ranking them stacking them and so um alex i'll let you start first you okay. can give me your number five and then i'll give you my number five and then we'll go of course down to number one um we can just see kind of you know who we got and give our kind of our our take on why we thought that way okay yeah sounds good so i have five seasons here um some honorable mentions too being you know kind yeah. of mentioned and that'll be given at the end of course too so- yeah sounds good so um I have some pitchers and position players. So Good. Good. Uh, my fifth, I'll go with uh, this pitcher, Travis. Um, it is honestly one of the most remarkable seasons ever. It occurred in the dead ball era. So that's why you almost have to kind of look at it in a unique lens because people weren't scoring runs as often back then. But Travis, I'm talking about 1913. A real throwback, guys. Real. Walter Johnson, age 25. He won the MVP this season. Love it, yeah. So I'm going to recap some of his numbers. He had a 346 innings pitched. So he was an absolute workhorse, of course. Um, A 1.14 ERA on the season, which is just like astronomically low. Um, ERA plus of 259, which is a a, a monstrous performance, especially considering that innings pitch number is so high. 36 wins, only 7 losses. 29 complete games, 11 shutouts. Seeing a 29 complete games, that's more starts than some of the Cy Young contenders that had, Angels had, had, had this season. And the Angels usually get, so what, yeah. When yeah. was the last time an Angels pitcher started 29 games, let alone this is 29 complete yeah. games we're talking yeah. about? But um, it just I just want to kind of put this in the context of it was a completely different era of baseball we're talking about over 100 years ago. But you can look at plenty of stats, Travis, and they will st- tell you that even still, despite the different era, one of the best seasons ever, a 1.90 FIP. His whip, Travis, was .780, which is just all-time low. 246 strikeouts. And the real number, Travis, on this season that really caught my eye and made me want to put it here is 16.5 baseball reference war. That is a crazy number that we don't see anyone above 11 these days. I think Betts and Trout on their best, best seasons can crack 10. Otani only got 9-something this season. But 16.5... Just kind of shows what a crazy workhorse he was. He won the MVP. And Travis, just in the spirit of Otani's season, I took a look at his batting this season. It was his best batting season ever, too. Walter Johnson wow. hit a 261 average, and he had a, he had a 109 OPS plus. So he was wow. an above-average batter, and he was, of course, the starting pitcher MVP. He had actually five doubles, three triples, and two homers in 144 plate appearances. So overall, Walter Johnson this season for me, um, is one of the best pitching seasons ever. It is easily, in my mind, his best pitching season. 
1913 Walter Johnson, that's my fifth best season ever. Yeah, and a, a, a nice shout out, uh, a Fortune High School graduate, Walter Johnson. I think yeah. it's a, 19, a local, 1904 class of Local Fortune. for us, yeah. Exactly. A, a very elite pitcher, probably... In my opinion, he is probably the best pitcher of all time if we had to rank that. I'm pretty sure me and Alex will have that sometime in the future. We'll rank, you know, best people at every position. But um, I love that season that you brought up. My number five, Alex, I went with a hitting season, and I went with the 2001 Barry Bonds. So 2001, of course, was the year where he broke uh, McGuire's record, hit 73, 73 home runs. I mean, I think... That could never happen again. I, I, yeah, you you got to be playing in a ballpark where, you know, maybe if you played in Houston and you're just a huge, you know, Frank Thomas-like right-handed hitter that you could do something like that. But unbelievable season that he had. Uh, so I had to give credit with that. So 73 homers. Um, you know, you really look at the percentage stats, Alex, and this is where it gets kind of ridiculous and stupid. I mean, a 328 average. Okay, people have done that. You know, people have done that nowadays. You know, it's not it's not very uncommon. Um a 515 on base. So you're getting on base more than, you know, every every two at bats, you're getting on base more than that. So right. 515 on base and 863 slugging percentage. Um, some guys nowadays don't even have that as an OPS, but he had that as a slugging percentage. And then a 1379 OPS with a 259 OPS plus. Um, I, I really don't know how you, much you can say for this. This is really what started the four-peat for MVPs for Bonds. This is kind of the, I would say, the second prime of his career. The first prime, I think, started in, two, in 1990 with the Pirates and then transitioned into 93 to the Giants. But um, this was a prime where it was just basically the deadliest hitter on the planet um, at the time, playing in a pitcher's ballpark yeah. at uh, in San Francisco. So what a run that he went on with that season. There were a lot of other seasons. I definitely looked at 2002 and some of these other seasons. I thought 2001 was definitely one of the best seasons that he ever had all around. So that is my number five, Alex. Um, I guess I'll go to number four and okay. then I'll go over to you. So number four, Alex, we think alike. Oh yeah? So 1913 was a good year for a guy named Walter Johnson. Exactly what you kind of said. Everything that you said was perfect. You know, 36 wins. I, 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 I mean, that is something that I think... It could get reached, but no, people, people don't, don't even have 36 starts. I don't think so. Only way I say it could be reached is if Jacob DeGrom somehow was on a team that scored four runs every single outing. But uh, you have to depend on a lot of different things. I think you depend on a lot of different things, and you need also, like, you need you need a pitcher, like, maybe a DeGrom type of guy, if he just was, like, had no injury bugs whatsoever, and, like, down the stretch, he said, Coach, like, pitch me every four yeah. starts. Yeah. Like, I, I'll, I'll let me jump rotation. Let me do every four starts. And maybe you could possibly get that. Yeah, but it's it's pretty, I guess it's pretty ballsy for me to say that we be done again. I mean, i definitely be betting it probably won't be done again. Right. Yeah, 36 wins. Um, uh, yeah, a 1.14 ERA with, you know, over 345 innings pitched. Like you said, the 29 complete games, 11 shutouts. Not a lot of strikeouts, 243. A lot of guys, you know, nowadays, I think Garrett Cole had 300 and something strikeouts. Um, in 2019, and Verlander had 300 strikeouts. So not a lot of strikeouts, so a lot of guys were making contact. What's really funny is that he actually led the league in home runs given up that year at nine. I feel right. like nowadays that would be, like, unbelievable. If you had nine home runs given up through 346 yeah. innings pitched, that would just be the stupidest thing ever. So 
that, and then of course the ERA plus, Alex, 259 ERA plus. That is one of the best of all time. And you look at all the advanced stats too. They're honestly, they're they're just ridiculous. So he is my fourth place guy for the all-time seasons. Who do you got for fourth place? So fourth place, I'm going to stick with another pitcher, Travis. Um, I think that the other spots I have, one, two, three, um, I think they're just kind of in their own class. So my fourth uh, is going to be 2000, the year 2000, Pedro Martinez. Um, the issue with this, Travis, is that he really had an amazing, amazing 1999 and 2000. If there was a best... If there was a best back-to-back seasons yeah. conversation we were having, Easily. I think he would be second or third, maybe first ever. Even if you want to put out prime, I know ninety-seven and ninety-eight were really impressive too. Yeah, I think I think I did a a, a search earlier today. If you look at his ninety-seven through his two thousand four, just combine it all, his ERA is like two point one one. It's like for seven straight years, how is that even possible? But I know. But yeah. anyways, I'm talking about the year I picked of that whole bunch was two thousand. It was his best ERA. And it was the best ERA plus of anyone in the modern era. Um, I think John Clarkson of like eighteen seventy one has like a better one, but I'm not gonna. Clap. I'm I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. I'm sorry to his great great grandkids that are alive still listening to this. I'm not gonna count that. So Pedro Martinez, Cy Young winner that year, I believe he got fifth in MVP voting. Um, but a two seventeen innings pitched, a one point seven four ERA, um, and a two ninety one ERA plus. And Travis. The reason why that ERA plus is such a high number is because he was pitching in the steroid era, of course. Mm-hmm. Year 2000 is his peak steroid era. This is two years after that crazy summer where Sosa and Maguire were chasing each other down. But we're talking about uh, you know an American league that had you know the Yankees who were just this mini dynasty. Um, of course, in the in the AL West, you have guys like Griffey. I mean, we're just talking about a an era of baseball where. I, I think it's probably one of the highest run-producing environments of all time, uh, if you just exclude maybe the uh, the uh, Babe Ruth 20s. But, um, yeah, I think Pedro, everything he accomplished this season, 284 strikeouts to 32 walks is a crazy ratio to see. He threw seven complete games, uh, four shutouts, 11.7 base reference war, an 18-6 and six record. I think overall, some of these numbers, being able to accomplish this in peak steroid era um it's just something we can't even imagine these these numbers are better than numbers we see today uh by such a wide margin and we're talking about you know facing these juiced out guys and he's just up there looking like a master so Mm -hmm. he is in my fourth spot um should i go to three travis yeah you start with number three okay sounds good my third pick travis uh number three spot is 1941 Ted Williams. I think this is Ted Williams' best season, age 22. Peak. I think it's his best year uh, for multiple reasons I'll get into right now. But one thing I'll start off with is Travis. He finished second in MVP voting to Joe DiMaggio. That is such a crime. Who only had one thing about that season, and that was the hit streak. The hit streak, of course. And then I guess you're playing center field. You're playing on the New York Yankees. There's just a bit more pull from voters to vote for DiMaggio over Williams. But if I had to break it down, I think there's probably no years where DiMaggio is better than Williams. But um, let me get into these stats. 37 home runs hit. The huge, huge thing for me was 406 batting average, 
which he is the last hitter to have ever hit over a 400 batting average. I do not think it'll ever happen again, of course, unless they just do some dramatic change in the unless baseball. Unless they want to play 60 games again or something like that. So Yeah, yeah. Well, unless like they do something crazy to change the base, baseball, they, they like limit the, what the pitchers can do. Or even the shift, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. So we'll see how you know the game evolves. But in this current era of baseball, Travis, batting average are going down and down and down. Ted Williams, he slashed 406 batting average, 553 on base percentage, 735 slugging. That's good for a 1,287 OPS, a 235 OPS plus. It was the most monstrous slash line I think I've ever seen. And this is coming from the all-time on-base leader with his best on-base season, his best batting average season, his best slugging season, his best OPS season, his best OPS plus season. It's, in my mind, the top two hitter of all time, and it's his best year by far. Mm -hmm. 147 walks, Travis. Only got struck out 27 times. That will never happen again, that kind of ratio. His contact skills with the power was on another level. He led all of MLB in runs, homers, walks, batting average, on base, slugging, OPS, OPS plus. 10.4 baseball reference war, and he is, like I said, the last player to ever hit 400. I think the whole Ted versus Joe DiMaggio thing, it's just such a crime. Obviously, you can point to the defense and the positions that they play, and that could be a bit of a difference. But there's just never been a season where Ted Williams was not the best hitter in the American League that he was you know, active in. Guys like Mantle too, Travis, guys who I love, who I think are amazing players. If you look at just the batting only, Williams is the king. So exactly. um, he's my number three guy. Easy, easy. Um, so I went number three. I went to a guy that actually rivaled Ted Williams later on in Williams' career. I went to the 1956, the Mick, Mickey Mantle uh 56 mickey mantle alex he won the mvp that year he also won the triple crown that year um he was a stud star center fielder age 24 season 52 home runs he led major league baseball with 52 home runs i tried looking back at some of the guys that had hit 50 plus home runs as a center fielder um the list is very short alex that was such a milestone year for a center fielder like that to hit that many home runs also to lead the league in rbis with 130 rbis uh then you go to the percentage stats 353 batting average that this i think in in this year's age would definitely be you'd be top three in mvp easily a 464 on base percentage and a 705 slugging percentage, a 1.169 OPS with a 210 OPS plus, uh, 376 uh, total bases. But I just what I really stands out is, of course, the the position that he played. I think if he did this as a first baseman, people would think it, it think of it as a it was a very it was a great first base season. But for what he did as a center fielder, with what with how athletic this guy was, doing this, putting up these numbers. I, you just kind of you, you kind of made a superhuman performance and a superhuman player um, in 1956, and I think you even looking back at that year had 11.2 WAR, the second best WAR of his career. So, I mean, just an unreal season. I think, of course, the Triple Crown kind of rings a, little, a nice little bell, of course, right there as well. Um, but an absolute tear of a year, and of course, the career was unstoppable. Um, I think this actually was after the whole sprinkler incident that happened. Right, in, I think in, that was in, his rookie year in, in, in his youth. So it's just kind of it's just kind of crazy how if you know if Mantle 
you know, if his body was to have taken care of more uh, in, in a better in a better way, what could have been possibly one of the greatest center fielders of all time? Definitely, if you condense the numbers down and do a into a into a prime, he is probably one of the best players. But it's funny how we're seeing a guy like Mike Trout put up numbers almost just like this. Um, and of course, he's a switch hitter. Doing this switch hitting is absolutely just mind boggling for me. So I think the fact that you have a switch hitter playing center field at an elite defensive level. Also, with some of the best speed in all of baseball back then, um, Travis, I couldn't agree with your pick more. I love the pick. I Like I mentioned with the Pedro Martinez pick that I had, back-to-back seasons is like a big deal. And like if you, if we did a different list for back-to-back greatness, this mantle stretch of 56-57 would have to be one of the best back-to-back stretches ever because in back-to-back seasons, you combine it, it's a 216 OPS+. plus. That's mm-hmm. for two years straight. A 350, uh, 358 batting average, combining the two years, he'd have 26 steals across those years, 86 home runs across those years, 50 doubles across those two years. Like, Mantle's prime, I couldn't agree more that it is just elite, elite, like probably the best center fielder ever in my mind, if you're looking at just the best, best, very best mm-hmm, seasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so that's fi- awesome. Yeah, 56, 57, of course, were definitely a two-year prime of just an unbelievableness. But I'll go now to number two. Uh, on my list and number two again you 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 mentioned it it's uh it's 1941 ted williams so again going with the hitting alex you kind of summed it all up beautifully i mean a 406 batting average and then you look at everything else i mean a 553 on base a 735 slugging with the ops numbers with what he led the American League and also the MLB in, and to finish second MVP, to me, is just, it's such an insane crime. And I guess, you know, looking at Ted Williams at the whole entire career, you just really wonder what his career and what he would have done without playing in the war, without playing, right. in, Two or, I'm sorry, playing in the war, being in the war, yeah. uh, World War II, from 43 to 45, three years of uh, military service. And then, of course, like you said, in the early 50s was in the Korean War. Did play games, I think. Yeah, did play games in both of those seasons, 52 and 53. But 52, he only played six games. 53, he only played 37 games. So it seems like he left at the beginning of 52 and came back for the end of 53. And it's just so incredible that he came back and was hitting the same. I mean, yeah. just did uh, not take any I mean, second. To I mean, you get look back, back you look back at 40 in 1946, came back from three years of military service, no baseball, probably no swings, nothing at all. He probably was stationed somewhere and was, you know, hitting coconuts or something like that. And so he comes back and hits 342 with almost a 500 on base, a 1.164 OPS. I think you just look at that kind of stuff and you just have to say, that's just the kind of hitter he was. And you can easily just say, he's the greatest hitter of all time. I mean, it's, it's it's stupid to say, but it, and it's sad to say. But it's like if you put Mike Trout and you tell him to go to the war and go fight in you know Iraq or Afghanistan right now and come back, there might be a small drop. There there will be a drop off because if you don't play baseball, it's so competitive these days. Exactly. But this guy came back and uh, he just was resumed where he left off. Absolutely phenomenal. But like you said, nothing really kind of you know nothing really compares to the 1941 season that Willie Mays put together. The greatest hitter to ever live. I definitely agree with that statement. What he did for his career was absolutely unbelievable. That 1941 season was um, something that, you know, mythical gods don't even do. So unbelievable. I, the one thing, of course, that I love you pointed out was the walks to the strikeout ratio. I, I, I don't really know what to say about that. I mean, 27 strikeouts in 143 games 
with all those walks. I mean, the more guy, more homers than strikeouts is something you'll probably never ever ever see again. Never again. Never again. And so that's why it definitely is a insane season. It's number two on my list. But Alex, who do you got for number two on your list? Yeah. So number two, uh, Travis. I think so. My number two, my number one, guys. I think. Unfortunately, I probably will end up stealing one of your picks again. Just, okay. It's, it's just the way it goes, you know. Uh, but my number two pick, Travis, is going to be, in my mind, I think I have to say if there's the best player of all time, I think I have to pick him. I'm talking about 1920 Babe Ruth. Um, I think that's his best season. There's many cases for different years he's had because he's had so many good years. And this was not like his best season by you know certain stats. Yeah. But Overall, I'm picking 1920 Babe for a few reasons I'll get into right now. So this was his first year in New York. He's age 25. He already had a, a successful career being a pitcher and a part-time, sometimes hitter with the Boston Red Sox, won championships for Boston. Uh, and of course, the famous trade for Babe Ruth, Curse of the Bambino, um, starts a huge drought for the Red Sox organization. Uh, and this is this is the kind of the crazy thing that gets me. So... He hits five. He sorry. He hits fifty four homers this season in nineteen twenty. That obviously leads baseball. Um, the previous year, he set the all time record for home runs in a season with twenty nine. So he literally set the record with Boston. They traded him, and then he just shattered his own record. And it really marked. It really marked Travis a change in baseball for history. And I think that's the reason why this season is so important in my mind because it is really all-time all-time great because the dead ball era was officially over i know i think i saw i think i saw honus wagner travis i I don't know how i see this on twitter but i just see a video of honus wagner explaining the dead ball era ending uh, which is of course like the 1910s era and and prior um all of a sudden babe ruth era a big reason why it came about was because babe ruth started hitting a bunch of home runs but another factor of it is i guess it started really they started limiting what the pitchers could do you couldn't throw like mud balls and spit balls and stuff <laughs> like that anymore i guess that kind of stuff really made it harder to hit for power because the balls have to have some crazy spin on it because you're you're doctoring the balls plus the, if you throw a mud ball at somebody it's like i feel like it's hard oh, to yeah. hit that over the fence I, I, I mean i i think about it now and i wonder if the pitchers like like soak the baseballs in water so it just got really like like just like a like a just, just heavy yeah. squishy ball and it's like try hitting the ball 300 feet with that and it's just like you're just trying to swing for the fences and it's just gonna be a pop-up and it's like okay how is that legal yeah so it was just it was such a contact heavy era during the double era everyone was hitting for average ty cobb honus wagner uh guys just hitting you know batting 400 but like like nine home runs might win you the home run title for the year barry or sorry babe ruth just completely changes the way baseball is played he so this season travis he batted 376 batting average 532 on base 847 slugging 847 slugging yeah. just to repeat that 1379 uh ops at the 255 ops plus 150 walks to 80 k's is a is an amazing ratio 11.9 baseball reference war it's his career best slugging OPS and OPS plus and he is the leader all time in slugging OPS and OPS plus for a career so it was his best year in those stats I think uh not only was it symbolic for a new era of baseball but it was the birth of a you know all-time great in New York his first year there and he just completely changed the game so for me this is the year for Babe Ruth that I wanted to highlight and that's my second best season ever Travis now I'll go down to my best season ever in my mind um it's 
it's obviously there's recency bias to it, but I put 2021 Shohei Otani as in my mind the best season ever. Um, at least in a way, it's the greatest season ever. Um, the difference you could argue is in terms of raw value, WAR, whatever stat you want to use for value. Otani does not have the highest WAR. Does not have the most wins added to any you know wins above average or anything like that. Uh, many of the Trout's MVP awards are given. He had more WAR than Shohei, but. Uh, Shohei Otani this season, besides the unanimous MVP at only age 26, the stats, we read them all the time. 257 average, 372 on base, 592 slugging, a 965 OPS for a 158 OPS plus. It's not like the other seasons we mentioned so far. The Mantle, the Ruth, the Ted Williams are much better hitting seasons. But the fact that Otani racked up 46 home runs and stole 26 bases while pitching 130 innings pitched for a 3.18 ERA. That will just never happen again by someone not named Shohei Otani. I'm pretty convinced of it. When Babe Ruth was a two-way player, he was always either better at one or the other. When he started committing to batting a lot, he became the best batter in baseball, but his pitching became average all of a sudden. He had like a hundred, like a 104 ERA plus. Shohei Otani this year a 141 ERA plus, a 158 OPS plus. He was an all-star hitter and an all-star pitcher. And thank goodness, Travis, he actually got those acknowledgements. He was able to start the all-star game, bat lead off in the all-star game, which was awesome to see. Um, 156 strikeouts is a huge deal. I don't care about record that much most of the time, but he had a 9-2 and record and on a losing team. Yeah. Being nine wins, two losses on a team that lost more games than they won is a, it it just shows how important those starts were and how much that meant for the angels 9.1 with base reference war and the first ever guy to be elite at both hitting and pitching at the same time i don't think anyone in the history of baseball is ever going to be able to do it again like otani i think he can continue to do it because he's proven it but i until i see it i'm just not going to be able to say that someone can have this much impact on both sides of the game, um, only using one roster spot, I think, you know, I think Otani is going to, you know, I think he'll probably be in the Hall of Fame one day just because no one, it's just the ultimate unicorn. No one can ever do what he just did. And I think everyone is starting to kind of realize that too. So that for me, that was the best season ever, greatest season ever, however you want to kind of phrase it. Um, Travis, go and give me your number one and we'll kind of talk about the whole thing yeah and to go back i think honestly i i don't know if they have it but i think definitely shohei's glove and his bat should be in the hall of fame yeah it's just a 19 20 or 2021 this guy did something that no one else has done in history not even the greats that you know both hit and pitch like babe ruth could not do something of this magnitude but alex i actually um you take 2021 and you basically go back 100 years exactly so i got oh, i wow. went to 1921 Babe Ruth and so uh he still pitched a little bit that season it was not very good it wasn't like his years in Boston he was kind of of course nearing the end of his pitching career in New York but I had actually I had a really tough time with 1920 and 1921 Babe Ruth both seasons were just I mean spectacular I of course was um looking at like you said 54 home runs in 20 in 1920 that was the all-time leader, all-time record. He broke it the previous year before with 29. So can you imagine doubling what you had the year before? And then... You doubled the record. Exactly. Much. It's almost like Barry Bonds hitting 73, and the next year he hits 145 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So 
Um, pretty spectacular. I went 1921, of course, because he not only broke 54, he went above that and hit 59. So yeah. he was just on a trend upward still. Uh, 168 RBIs that year. Uh, pretty incredible there. 145 walks. Um, slightly, of course, pretty much the same batting average. He had a 376 average in 20 and then a 378 in 21. Um, a little bit of a drop off in the on base percentage, but you know, a 512 on base is, I'm not going to say it's a drop off because that's still it's just very pretty good, yes. incredible. The same almost slugging percentage. He only had a 20 point difference in the OPS. So he had a 1359 OPS with a 239 OPS plus, but he set the record that still is to this day. He set the all time total bases record at 457 total bases in a season. Um, I just look at this kind of guy. I mean, I mean, I mean, People always, I mean, you ask the common average Joe on the street who's the best baseball player of all time, and, I mean, they'll probably say Babe Ruth because it's like, you know, growing up, everybody knew Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, was, Babe Ruth is the most iconic baseball name out there. But um, I just like how this, uh, I wish I could pick, I wish we could do, honestly, maybe maybe next time we'll do best primes. But, I mean, I just love how this prime, this was just Babe Ruth trending upwards. In 1920, 1921, he was thought of as unhuman. I mean, this was something that the greats, of you know the 1910s could never do anything even close to this. I think one of those years, nine home runs was the uh, was the leader I, in home runs. I think runs. that was a Ty Cobb triple crown. Exactly, and he hit 59 home runs. Yeah. I mean, you really got to put it in that perspective of what it meant at the time and what the records were at the, at the time and how he just shattered these records. So, 59 home runs wasn't the most he had in a um, in a season 60 was uh, 1927 but had a one war higher than 1920 so I of course kind of wanted to factor that in with a 12.9 war in 1921 um, man was just unstoppable you know I was looking back at the voting and I you know of course you want to look at you know how many MV, MVP votes did they get I guess they actually stopped MVP voting from like 1916 to 1921 yeah and it's Babe just Ruth was robbed. <laughs> it's just kind of crazy that Babe Ruth would have won probably four in a row. And you, it's funny how back then you don't really have consistent MVPs. I feel like they would be like, we gave it to him last year. We're going to find a new guy to give it to. So All if, the time they do if, that. If it was, of course, today's media, he would, of course, had a four-peat with MVPs. And I'm pretty sure he'd probably have like 10 or 12 MVPs, of course, if he played in today's area and had these numbers. But um, 1921, Alex, was my uh, best season of all time just because – it was a slight combination of both pitching and hitting, but he put together a hitting season that was like no other. So I went that route. Um, and, I, of course, the Shohei season, you really can't put together what that happened in that season almost, I feel like, ever again. So um, we'll see if maybe Shohei can do better than he did last year. But, I mean, I like how people are saying, you know, we're going to start teaching our little leaguers to, you know, hit and pitch. So maybe in 20 years that'll be kind of more of a norm. But looking back, Shohei was the guy who pretty much started the trend. He was the guy. He's the pioneer, pretty much. So um, really like those lists that we put together. Uh, I'll start with you, kind of just if you want to go over some of the honorable mentions, if you had any that you thought deserved to, you know, be talked about. Yeah, so I'll start off with uh, with Mantle because you mentioned Mantle, and he was for sure my honorable mentions. I had his – for me, actually, you had a 56. I had 57 written okay. down. But like I was mentioning earlier, that back-to-back years, um, just totally remarkable. Um Prime Mantle, I think, like I already said, was the best center fielder ever. So I had to include a Mantle year in there. Um, the problem, Travis, the reason why he didn't make my top five was because I had written down 1957 Mantle. And if you look at 1957 awards, Mantle won the MVP mm-hmm. and had more war than Williams. 
but Williams was second place, and he had better batting average, better on base, better slugging, better OPS. So it's like the Yankee bias. The Yankee bias. Oh well, because because Mantle also amazing defender and had more WAR, so I can understand why they picked him. But how can I say this is a top five season ever? Just for me, for fifty seven, not not your fifty six. Yeah. Fifty seven. How can I say this is the best season, one of the best seasons ever, when in that same year? another player was a better batter across yeah. the board. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I had to leave Mantle of 57 was in my honorable mentions. Another honorable mention I had, Travis, was actually someone who I, I almost snuck in there, and it was 1985 Dwight Gooden. Mm-hmm. And that is just because the war was unreal, 13.3 baseball reference war. There's definitely a record for, like, the more modern era, like 80s, 80s till now. Like, you'd never see a 13.3 war. That's just such a high number. He went 276 innings, uh, sorry, 276 innings that year, with a 1.53 ERA, 24 and four record. He 16 complete games, just and definition of a workhorse. Um, age 20 as well. Just it was his second season. He won a rookie of the year the year before. So he went from rookie of the year to a Cy Young, um, completely deserving. And then my last honorable mention, Travis, I wrote down also was 1967 Carl Yastrzemski. Mm-hmm. That was his. Um, his triple crown year and overall the war for him that year was just off the charts um pulling up his stats right now uh, he just in my mind was one of the most underrated players when i look back at the kind of the, the record books and look at the old stats um he had a really really good prime for a few years and then had also a nice longevity played 23 seasons and is really up there on the all-time hits leaderboard, all-time kind of runs and RBIs. You see his name up there because he played so many games played. But just looking at the peak season he had in 67, a 326, a batting average, 418 on base, 622 slugging. Um, overall, he led the MLB in OPS and OPS+. Plus. Combine that with a gold Glover kind of guy. Um, I'm pulling up his, his war. It was up at a... 12.4 so just a remarkable remarkable season for him um and i think he gets slept on honestly like kind of the best left fielders of all time conversation mm-hmm. so um for me i had him as an honorable mention so travis go ahead and give me some of your honorable mentions and we can talk about those yeah so i know i didn't have a lot of pitching so i want to of course include these two um i did of course add uh for my honorable mention 2000 pedro martinez um you basically summed it up perfectly with everything that he put together and everything that he had to go through when it came to his opponents and the lineups um, it was pretty remarkable. I had to also include 1968 Bob Gibson just because of the all-time career ERA title in a single season was absolutely spectacular. 28 complete games, 13 shutouts, more shutouts than what Walter Johnson had in 1913. So just kind of just a, I mean, just an insane kind of stat to look at there, at there too. 304 innings pitched, so he actually reached the 300 innings mark in a season, which again, I mean, that, that right there just takes a special kind of, um, you know, human being to reach 300 innings pitched, a workhorse, uh, 268 strikeouts with a 258 OPS plus, And then of course with uh whip down to below eight, eight or 0.85. And so just, of course, a remarkable season, won the Scion, won the MVP. Some people, of course, still this day, still think one of the greatest pitching performances of all time, greatest seasons of all time for uh, on the mound, at least. So Bob Gibson had to be in my honorable mentions. Uh, two hitters that I had to include as well, 
Uh, kind of going back, of course, old, old school again, 1925 Rogers Hornsby. So I wanted to include him just because, of course, like I said, the comparisons when you when you look at different guys who play different positions. Historically, second basemen are guys, of course, that probably have a good average, not a lot of power, are probably going to hit leadoff or towards the end of the lineup. This guy, of course, was hitting in the middle of your lineup, had a three, I'm sorry, a 403 batting average, so hit above 400, a 489 on base, a 756 slugging a 1245 OPS plus and with that season he had 39 home runs I look back in 1925 and of course Ruth had the home run title he was the guy that hit the most home runs but I mean if you didn't have any Babe Ruth it, it, it's almost like you look at a guy like Rogers Hornsby who could be possibly one of the greatest power hitters of all time and he played second base I know a lot of people still to this day say he might be one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time yeah just from all the stat lines well, that he put especially up looking at the peak the prime exactly so Rogers Hornsby, 1925, won the MVP that year. Uh, just put out some insane numbers at second base, so I had to include him, just of what he meant for a middle infielder in that era. And then the last one, Alex, kind of went a little a little rare and just and just did some digging on this one, but I had to include this guy. I know you, you've definitely shown that you've, you love this guy and his stats, but I had to go Josh Gibson. Okay. I had to go Josh Gibson of um, playing in the Negro Leagues in the 30s into the 40s. I went with his 1937 season. Um, of course, me, I'm a guy who wants to see you have longevity. I want to see you have a lot of games played. But I remember, the, I know the Negro Leagues did not play, of course, 162 games in a season. They had a really shortened season, of course. And, and I'm sure there's like tons of those stats that were not like documented fully. And exactly, exactly. So 1937, Josh Gibson played for the Homestead Grays. That season, he only played 39 games. I looked at some of the stats and some of their, some, with, with funding in the Negro Leagues, some games actually got canceled because of weather. So they literally, they, they just were just, of course, treated. And um, all the Negro League athletes were just, you know, pretty much just were, of course, did not have the funding to make up games and all that kind of stuff. Um, people, of course, you know, documentaries will show kind of the lives they had to live playing in the Negro League, still playing baseball. But Alex, still playing in 39 games that year. Um, and I think it was actually at about 40-something games. So a really a good percentage of the games he still started in. In 40 games, what I kind of did was I looked at, okay, if he played 160 games of an MLB season, here's what his stats would look like. If he played 160 games that year, he would have over 230 runs. He'd have 80 home runs. He'd have over 240 RBIs. His batting average would probably drop, but that season his batting average was 417, 500 on base, 974 slugging, a 1474 OPS plus with a 273 OPS plus and total bases Alex would be well north of 500 total bases honestly actually I'm sorry it'd be well north of 600 total bases that season I just I looked it up and I had to include it because I just saw the numbers and I was just I was just so mind blown I was just like this guy and so many other Negro League talents in the 30s that were hidden from the major leagues that if you look at their stats today they might have put Babe Ruth and everyone to shame. I mean, this guy would have would have would have Babe Ruth would have called this guy his daddy because his stats were so good. I just thought looking at those numbers and that is only that is only one quarter of a major league season. Imagine if you had the trends and you put them out throughout a full 162 game season, what your numbers would look like. Um, it was pretty spectacular. Travis, that's such an awesome pick because I mean, for so many reasons. But um, like you said, so many great Negro League seasons happen kind of under the surface where lots of you know mainstream baseball fans today might not even know about them just because they weren't really super well documented but recently this last this last uh, calendar year pretty much 
Baseball Friends has been making a huge effort to make it clear that Negro Leagues are part of the Major Leagues, and they want to have the stats as mm-hmm. available as possible. So seeing all those numbers you just told us about, Travis, it is one of the most remarkable seasons. Seeing a 974 slugging, I don't care how many games that is. That's just not real, right? That's like I, I mean, that's, just, that's like video game critic. I, I mean, character. honestly, what's crazy is that we had a season last year that you could really compare, and no one had these stats. And you no look one at was remotely close. A 60 game season, no one had 60 runs, 20 homers, 73 RBs. You know, no one had all these stats, and so it was just pretty remarkable that even if you put them in last year. It's still like this guy is an absolute juggernaut, and he's catching. So, and I was about to say, Travis, a big key to all these crazy numbers is he was playing catcher the whole time. Obviously, you know, probably got subbed into some you know first base, and looks like he played some third base outfield as well, according to baseball reference. But um, keeping all that in mind, playing catcher probably one of the most physically demanding positions there is, besides pitcher, of course. And putting up these kind of batting numbers is just something that is... And a 15 op- war. <laughs> uh, wow. Obviously, obviously that's his all-time great, right? So um, including that is, is super awesome. Travis, I think I've even seen quotes of guys like Babe Ruth, guys like Lou Gehrig. They'll talk about the Negro League guys they played against. Or even like, I know that they went on uh, like... Exhibition. Exhibition tours. They yeah. go play against Negro League teams, teams in Mexico. They even went to Japan one time, and some pitcher struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back-to-back. <laughs> Crazy little legendary stories. Show his that, grandpa, yeah. <laughs> I don't think those stuff gets talked about that much, but um, it really should because, yeah, I think I've heard guys like Babe and, and Lou saying that their best player they've ever seen is Josh Gibson. There's They've seen home runs just leave Yankee Stadium, just out of the ballpark completely. Um, just, just things that like, you could never even imagine, so... Um, that's such an awesome inclusion uh, to throw into the honorable mentions. Um, I was trying to figure out it, it, it. It's so difficult to compare because, like you said, thirty nine games played. These guys just weren't playing comparable seasons. But uh, it is really a tragedy that we don't have like you know better record keeping. And days. and the and the amount of um you know the amount of I mean you know some of these guys were sleeping on a bus you know on, on oh, Sunday yeah. night. I mean just the way that they had to go about the season was so much different than a New York Yankee. You were getting. You know, you were getting fine dines, staying at the best hotels, the best restaurants. Everything was great. You're having a nice, relaxing night. And these guys, of course, are sleeping in the back, you know, of a, of a bus. And it's, it's like, you know, we got to park here for the night. And, you know, you're just the obstacles that they had to face. And also what he was able to put up this season is just kind of like, I mean, I'm, I, I just you cannot compare this kind of stuff. So pretty incredible. And, of course, again, playing catcher. I mean, imagine how beat up his body is after these seasons. So right. unbelievable. And yeah, another thing to add on Josh Gibson also, he actually just died at age 35, which is, you don't even realize that when you look at his numbers, but his last season played was his age 34 season. Died at age 35, you know, what, what a tragedy that is just because, you know, we talk about, people always talk about like he might be the leader all time in home runs. If you look at like the unofficial exhibition games, add it all up, it's like over 800, you know, yeah. or over, yep. over 900. People don't really know the exact number, but... Um, the fact that he also died before he even finished his career is another just tragedy in and of itself. But Travis, I'm so glad we got to talk about this and all the other great seasons for this, like just kind of almost honoring Shohei's great season with these other great seasons that yep. we get a chance to reflect on and sort of put Shohei's year into some context about, you know, other great seasons in the history of MLB. Travis, another long episode, but we got through it. Lots of news this week and hopefully more news coming up next week. Um, Obviously, the December 1st is going to be a big deal. I believe that's when the CBA expires. There will probably be some sort of bit of a lockout. I don't think they're making a deal the next week or two. So 
we're going to have to uh, cover all the news up until then. And then when the lockout begins, we'll have plenty of other you know ideas coming your way, listeners. So um, thank you so much if you've made it this far. Like always, please like and subscribe. Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what you think about our lists. If someone's had a great season and you want us to know about it, let us know. But um, that pretty much wraps everything up. Thank you if you made it this far. And we will talk to you guys next week. Presented by Tool Tools Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>